god. Well, we're laughing into this one. Starting up this. Yes. We're starting up Screen Heat Miami. Going straight into laughter. This is this is this this is a this is a really good one. So you all will join in with us on this laughter. I'm Kevin Sharpley. And I guess I, I don't Jay have a co-host. <laughs> no, it, it's the streaming delay. It's not me. Right. In person, this is just that one second little glitch. JL Martinez is the other half of Screen Heat Miami. And we are good to go on this exciting week. Yeah. As we always really? say, things are heating up. Yeah. White hot. They're really going to heat up. Can't even touch my computer today to get the notes. It's so hot. Woo! The writers are back. Writers are back. The WME William Morris Endeavor Talent Agency is the last of the big four to sign a new agreement with the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, to once again represent the scribes in Hollywood. And it really does make a difference. It makes oh, yeah. a huge difference. I mean, I remember when they had the writer's strike. This wasn't a strike. This was the writers actually banding together to fire their agents. And, you know, I really hate to put it that way, you know, fire the agents, because I know that with a lot well, of them, they're right. long-term relationships. Yeah. So yeah. we'll yeah, just say that they, <laughs> yeah, they, they had a mutual uncoupling. They, they, they took a break as the young couple. <laughs> right, a separation, but they're back. <laughs> they're back. All the big four now, CAA, Endeavor, uh, UTA, and ICM partners have all signed a new agreement with the WGA, which means writers can now recouple with their former agents should they choose to do so. There you go. And, and it makes a huge difference having that writer's wall in behind and in front of Hollywood because, you know, they're the ones that write the stories. And what I was leaning in on was I remember when they had the strike uh, maybe a decade ago or so and or longer, actually longer than that. And you could not at first because they had some episodes in the can and they had some scripts in the can, but as it waned on, you could really feel the difference. You could feel mm-hmm. the difference in the programming on television. You could feel the difference in the movies that were coming out. So, you know, the writers really are you know, a wealth and undisputed wealth within the industry. And they really do deserve, you know, as much as, they're asking for so oh yeah yeah no absolutely particularly in television with the showrunners kind of setting the tone for some of these amazing binge series that we've been watching and we're going to be talking about shortly that uh you know traditionally in hollywood unfortunately the writers were treated as sort of the least important of all the above the line players uh but we know that they are massively important and when they sort of banded together under the wga and really pushed for to get their full worth, you know, they they wound up winning this battle. Obviously, they had a little help from the pandemic. I think that really put the major agencies in a corner. Uh, I think they would have been able to hold out a little longer had it not been for what we've all experienced over the past eight to 12 months now. Yeah. And it's a good thing because they're more needed now than ever as the streamers really, really take off. I mean, 
It's crazy the numbers that they're doing. The Disney Plus mm-hmm. streaming numbers just came in. Ooh, that's a big number. But you, you know what? We didn't introduce our guest today. We always do that. <laughs> and he's such an awesome guy. Paul Tate. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah, you see, we got so heady. We got so heady. We didn't introduce our guest and we didn't introduce our sponsors either. And so, ourselves. Oh, well, we did do that. Yeah, I, we can do it again. It's Kevin Sharpley. <laughs> JL Martinez. This is Screen Heat Miami brought to you by Cinevision. Kajik Multimedia. Chemical. And the Miami Media and Film Market. So, our guest this week is actor, producer, writer, director, Paul Tay. And theater owner, right? Well, not theater owner, but he does have, um, I, I would say it's more a production company. They're, uh, they're you know, a theater troupe that has performed um, and, and actually one, one of the most lauded in all of South Florida. So they've performed in many, many places, the Miami, the historic legendary Miami Light Project. Um, they were partners with them for many, many, many years. And when you, as you hear the interview, you'll see that they've morphed into now a production company. So they've produced their first feature film. It's in post-production so, and that's the evolution of things, really. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say that, you know, we started this business back when we were in the film school days and the apprenticeship days, and it was totally different than what we're seeing now. And yeah. the way we kind of approach things, the way we create things, the way we make things, and how things are distributed across the board, uh, particularly now with our favorite topic, the streaming wars. Yeah. And you, and you take a business like Viacom, for example, that actually started in theater, the theater distribution, theater exhibition business. And now look at look at where they're at now, where they have, you know, collateral of companies, MTV, VH1, Paramount, CBS, you know, they're a multimedia conglomerate. So evolution is key in this industry. Yes. And, and you know, and we were. Huh? I was going to say, we were just going to talk about how much in the short time span between November 2019 and today, Disney Plus Woo! has evolved. Yeah. Before we get into Disney Plus, I just want to say a little bit more about Paul Tay. He's one of my favorite actors. He was on two of my favorite shows and two of the biggest shows of Miami history. Bloodline. Yeah. Just tremendous, critically praised. Um, and commercially praised meaning it was one of netflix one of their highest rated shows and um burn notice it burn notice yeah number one rated cable show at that time created indelible characters i mean his characters on both of those shows were standouts uh, and, and they were um you know, fan favorites. So we'll get into that in the, in, in the interview. And then also a lot about his theater, his theater work, which is tremendous. So we're excited about Paul Tay as excited about these numbers from Disney, Disney yes. plus Disney plus the streamer, 94.9 million subscribers worldwide. As of January 2nd. Mm, and that's up from 86.8 back in December. So they're they're just they continue to churn out new subscribers. They continue to to build in terms of the quality, not as much quantity, right, as a net. 
Netflix. It's it's more of a, a little boutique with, but they're, IPs are so powerful from the Marvel universe to Star Wars. They just really have, you know, to obviously Pixar and the Disney classic films and shows. It's just really the best of the best IPs that they invested in wisely over the years. Yeah. And when you talk about Disney, you talk about the moves that they've made to get to where they're at. And, you know, of course, it was a, a very tough time there at the, the top of the pandemic. You know, I mean, we started talking about their streamers. They originally thought that they were going to bust out with five million and they hit it running with eight million and then move quickly to 10 million. So this stretch of time really catapulted them to those meteoric numbers. And I think the pandemic, you know, was a big part of that. But I think an even bigger part was the chess moves that they've made over time, acquiring, you know, over time, Pixar, acquiring uh, Disney, I mean, acquiring um, Star Wars, Wars, acquiring um, Marvel. Yeah, all of those have played into them having a robust offering for their streaming service. Again, maybe not as many originals as the other streamers, but they have indelible brands that people will always connect with. So very smart moves. This It's not by accident. Right. Definitely not by accident. I think another smart move is the way that they are pushing their originals. So, you know, Mandalorian was a hit. And I think that that's going to be a big part of the reboot, reboost, reboot and reboost of the Star Wars. Well, well, to me, it's really that singular series which started it all. I don't think they would have had near the numbers they got had it not been Mandalorian season one, part of that initial offering back in November of 19. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then WandaVision, which initially... A lot of people now when WandaVision came out, it already had 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. So the critics loved it. But of course, the critics are privy to things that regular people aren't. They get to watch the entire series. So they already knew what was coming. WandaVision, it had a soft start. And the reason why is because the initial episodes, the initial episodes, which now that you look back on it, were genius. They hearkened back to the time periods, the decades prior. And I think it has that connection with Disney. So you hearken back to those time periods that Disney kind of started, the 50s, moving into the 60s, which was the second episode, the third episode into the 70s, and then the 80s. But, you know, people really didn't understand those first couple of episodes because they played out just like episodes back in those times. So the 50s episodes was like Ozzy and Harriet, you know, moving into the 60s felt more like Bewitched and, you know, those and then moving into the 70s and then the 80s, you know, kind of felt like, you know, family ties and Punky Brewster and those kind of shows, you know, moving into the 90s and then you have the 90s feel. So all of them had a certain feel. And if you didn't have that connection with those time periods, I think it made it a little bit more difficult. But with the latest episode, which has brought it into view exactly why those episodes played out the way that they played out, 
it really looks like genius. Yeah, I'm not sure like it's, yet, but yeah, but I, I do know that there's a big payoff coming. So, but as a as a TV buff of the old sort of like you said, you know, the Nick at Night kind of shows uh, that they harken back to, I think that it's, it's just been fun to watch. That would be smart on on um, on AT and T, but really, I'd say AT and T because it's the parent company. For uh, that'd be really smart on Warner Media to bring back or Viacom. That's wrong. It'd be really smart yeah. on Viacom to bring back a lot of these shows, the Nick at Night, you know, a lot of these shows that IP that they have as right. a counter. But right. that's neither here nor there. WandaVision is now a hit. People are talking about the genius of it all. And so that was a smart move, a really smart move on Disney's part because it's the ecosystem ultimately that right. has proven to be the boom for Disney. Right. Right. As they continue yeah. to make these smart moves, Soul, which is Pixar's latest offering, is one of the biggest hits in terms of animation. Right. As but, but again, at, out of necessity, because of the fact that the theatrical option and just wasn't there last year. And so, you know, this is, again, hearkening back to what 2020 wound up being, which was literally no theatrical revenue, at least any significant revenue for any of the major studios and having to decide whether to continue to push your IP the way that the Bond 25 has been pushed continuously or rolling the dice with your streamer and just putting it out there the way that Wonder Woman did uh, at HBO Max and the way that Soul did over at Disney+. Plus. Yeah, Soul is the most watched streaming animation uh, movie. So, right. you know, they're making all the right moves. Something has happened that's beyond their control, though, because you can't control people. They have a big scandal on their yes. hands. Well, this, this, is, this is where we're going to debate over whether it's a wise move or not in, uh, in the future. But uh, yeah, I think you're alluding to the story of Mandalorian star Gina Carano, who was unceremoniously let go from Lucasfilm, which is the subsidiary of Disney that produces the Mandalorian, obviously, and the whole Star Wars brand. And also the fact that there was uh, there was pushback to the pushback. And now we'll see ultimately who wins this battle. Yeah, she was let go because she made a defamatory statement. Right. I'm not going to talk about the actual statement, but a lot of people were incensed. But it's not just because of that statement. It's a collection of statements that she's made over the past couple of years that, you know, Disney has warned her time and time again. And ultimately, Disney is a more family friend friendly brand. So ultimately, you know, they need to protect their brand. A lot of people, you know, talk about free speech and she should have free speech, which she should. Anybody should be able to say anything that they want to. But what a lot of people don't realize is when you sign on to a lot of these um, shows, there's clauses in your contract that stipulate exactly what will trigger a situation. Right. And so, no, I, yeah, absolutely. And obviously, we're not privy to what her contract actually said, but I have to imagine that most talent now, because of the ramifications of an individual star's social media accounts, 
that those have to be very well written into these deals that are going out now for these shows, particularly when they're tied into major brands like Disney, Disney Plus, Star Wars, all that kind of stuff that you kind of have to, yeah, you do have to be careful with what you put out there once you're under contract with one of these major studios or streamers, absolutely. Um, but like you were saying, there is this idea of free speech and you know whether or not what she said crossed the line or not, you know, that's been debated back and forth. Obviously it elicited a strong reaction from, uh, particularly from Lucasfilm and Disney Plus. Uh, but like you said, this is something that had been built over time. You know, she had made previous comments before that were considered controversial. I think this was just kind of like the tipping point uh, for them to to kind of head and pull the trigger and, and remove her from any future. You know, she had already wrapped, you know, Mandalorian 2 was out. I don't think that Mandalorian 3 is scheduled to go into production until later in the spring or the summer. Uh, so nothing immediate, essentially. But this you know, they were already talking about giving her her own spinoff series, yeah. like the Boba Fett character, which, yeah. you know, uh, that would have that, that would have been interesting for fans to be able to see that. Uh, and now I don't I'm not sure if they'll be able to see that unless, you know, and again, not sure there was blowback to the blowback in the fact that there was a trending hashtag had canceled Disney Plus uh, in the days following her firing. And that seemed to garner some of its own traction online. Whether or not that's going to elicit another response from Lucas or Disney, we don't know yet. Her social media accounts have seen a jump in numbers as well, but she also lost her agent at UTA, which is a, one of the big four agencies that we were talking about before. Yeah, and it's a shame. I really liked her character. I really like the way that they did her, her character initially wasn't uh, to be fleshed out, you know, as big as uh, right. they did. And as you said, there was going to be a spinoff show or there was talks about that spinoff show, show in the works. Um, I, I like her actually as a as a talent. Um, so, you know, it's, you know, I think a, a sad case in a way that. You know, you love to see the growth of characters and, you know, speaking of writers, it's all about arcs. So you love to see these arcs and characters and, you know, seeing how the characters are fleshed out over time. But, yeah, you know, it yeah. is what it is. It is what it is. And look, we'll, we'll get into another gentleman who has very strong opinions about, I guess, what, what we consider now cancel culture, which is Dave Chappelle, which we'll get to in the outro. Uh, yes. and, and is something like this, is this quote transgression that that Gina made something that should, you know, hinder her from ever having a career again in the entertainment industry? Or is this something temporary that eventually will kind of, you know, wash over and she'll be able to make a comeback, whether it's in any sort of a Disney or Star Wars universe or whether it's some career outside of that? remains to be seen um but again you know she had like you said she has the talent she has the look she has the charisma uh the question is whether her you know her her social media postings are going to affect her long term or whether this will be sort of a short-term thing and she'll be able to make some kind of a hollywood comeback in the future that remains to be seen well you know what what i love about our next interview has as much to do with what you're talking about as it has to do with resiliency, because our next guest, Paul Tay, has created, recreated, and then recreated again his career <laughs> so many times, you know, at high levels. Yeah. So this is 
one for the ages. This is another interview that if you're in the industry, you can really connect with because, you know, there is a lot of uh, technical behind the scenes talk that he gives. But even if you're not in the industry, it is an episode. This is a, an interview that you can connect with because, you know, again, Paul's been on some of the most indelible hits on television and, you know, he's also done film. So this is, this is, this was a great one. I loved uh, talking to Paul Tay. So, and it's a, you know, it's a little bit longer than some of our other interviews. So without further ado, we give you Paul Tay. We have Paul Tay, a multi-hyphenated, I want to say creator, storyteller, um, griot, raconteur, what have you. Um, and I can say one of my favorite actors, uh, especially from the South Florida area. So uh, welcome, Mr. Paul Tay. Thank you. Thanks for having me, man. It's a pleasure and an honor. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's a long time coming. Thank you. So I just want to start from the start. Sure. Uh, you were born in South Florida. I was. Yeah, I was born in uh, Hollywood, Florida. My parents had um, gotten married in the mid-60s, and they moved to Miami Beach. That, that was where their honeymoon was going to be, and they just loaded up their car. They were from West Virginia, like right outside the Pittsburgh area, and, um, and just moved to Miami Beach, eventually found a place to live, got jobs, and, you know, in 1969, they had me and uh, grew up in the Hollywood, Pembroke Pines, Davie. That whole area was formidable um, for my growth. And, yeah. you know, by the time I was a teenager, um, I was hanging out a lot on Miami Beach uh, because that's where the, the, the music scene was really at at that time. The cameo theater is where I saw like all these punk legends. I mean, I saw the dead Kennedys with their original lineup. Uh, I saw Dan Zegg's first solo tour. I saw the chili peppers when they were still a small band. Um, you know, the dead milkmen, black flag circle jerks. Uh, man, it was amazing. Um, so yeah, I was a South Florida kid. Yeah, that's now that is, you know, a great foundation because a lot of those groups that you mentioned are iconic legends. Yeah. You, you know, the, the Chili Peppers, maybe my my daughter, that's one of her favorite groups. Yeah. And, you know, I had to really, really tell her exactly who the Chili Peppers were when they first started. Yeah. You know, they I mean, they were, you know, closer to punk than they were what they have evolved to. And so, funk. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, like true men don't kill coyotes. And I saw them. It was the uplift mofo party plan where they were doing that cover of Stevie wonders, higher ground. Higher ground, so right? They, so they were starting to really mess a little bit more with like, you know, funky kind of more um, dance friendly kind of stuff before they, you know, lost their first guitar player to heroin. And then boom, they just made this like huge left-hand turn. Yeah. Well, that sometimes that'll, That'll do it. But that evolution, 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 that that is a big thing. And, you know, as artists, we always must evolve. And, and yeah. people look for that. 
they look for evolution in, in, in artists. So, yeah. Yeah, I think adapt or die is really the motto that um, I feel is most prominent in my daily routines because, you know, when when COVID and lockdown first hit and they're like, okay, so we're going to go remote and you're going to have to teach online. I was like, how am I supposed to teach theater classes on Zoom? How am I supposed to direct a play on Zoom? How am I supposed to? And that man, let me tell you, in 12 days, it was like, oh, this is how you do it. And, you know, as an artist, you you're you're blessed if you hit a wall and you can figure out how to get around that wall or over that wall or under that wall or what's the best way, but not just get hit with a wall and, you know, go away. And I I guess that's sort of like kind of how I am with most things is I'm very kind of Don Quixote about shit. It's like, if you're, if, 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 if it's an obstacle, it's my job to figure out how to overcome that obstacle or else why am I putting work out there for people to see? You know what I mean? Yeah. And and that's actually a great statement for any component in terms of the film and, and television industry content creation industry because it, it is that even when you, with, when you're within a project whether oh. you're acting or you're writing or you're producing or directing it's always this you know morph morphosis that you have to go through if you don't and you're stuck then you know that kind of sticks the project and then you're in trouble so. you know you know that every project you've ever worked on there is going to be you know you had an obstacle that you had to figure out a way to deal with and overcome it yeah. Whether it's a, an actor, finances, location, the weather, there's always going to be stuff that doesn't go as it's planned. And that's when you find out who you are. And that's when you find out who your crew is, who the people are that you're working with, whether or not you can all withstand a, you know, sort of car crash. Can you deal with yeah. a car crash? Can you keep going to the place you were going to go, even though you got into a car crash? Wow, man, you have a uh, you have all the definitive uh, sound bites. So I'm old now, Kevin. So you know you <laughs> you, you get some wisdom. <laughs> you right. ho- oh, you hope that's what it is. You hope it's wisdom and not just you know uh, bad fortune cookie. It sounds like wisdom to me. So we're, we're gonna you know move up to the point where you're where you're at now. That uh, right. you know you say you're old, but uh, you know that's all. Well, in- that's all in the heart and soul, but uh, you were well. You were asking me where it all started, and it started there. But then, where it really kicked off was when I was in grad school at um, the Goodman School of Drama, DePaul University, and the theater school in Chicago. That's really where I grew up. That's really where it was like, oh, you believe in this, challenge it. You believe in that, challenge it. You believe in that, yeah. and so it was. It was being thrown into the fire and learning how to, to survive. And um, that was one of the things that, that was really instilled in me at DePaul was this idea that uh, overcome, you have to overcome it. You know, if it really matters to you to do something, you could do it with 25 bucks, you could do it with 2,500 bucks. You know, the, the story doesn't necessarily change. It remains the same. It's the vision that will change around it depending on what the budget is. 
you know, so like what we were talking about before with overcoming obstacles, that's really what I think my training and education prepared me to do, which is why I wanted to be a director and essentially a producer, which was let's solve the problem. Let's work on an original script. I don't care if it's finished. I don't need to workshop it to death. I don't need a bunch of other playwrights telling you what to change and not to change. Trust your instincts. Let's get a cast. Let's workshop it. Let's put it up there. And when it doesn't work, we'll figure out what the problem is and overcome that. So, so. I just want to go a little bit further back. Totally. Yeah. Than, than DePaul. And I want to understand when was that spark for you that said, okay, this is the direction I'm going to go in. I'm going to go into the film and entertainment industry. This is my lane. Well, in high school, um, I was really more focused on two things, soccer and music. And um, I had a band and I was in a band before that. And um, I really wanted to, always wanted to do music because that was my escape um, as a little boy was music. Closing the door, putting on headphones, and listening to scratchy 45s that I bought at the swap shop in Fort Lauderdale, you know, uh, and just becoming absorbed in that and wanting to be Ace Freely or, you know, George Harrison or Ringo Starr or Ozzy Osbourne or whatever I was going through, whatever phase that was, wanting to be rock and roll. Um, and then my love of soccer. So, you know, being the captain of my soccer team my senior year Chaminade and being in a band man like to me I had a, I had arrived you know yeah. <laughs> like that I didn't know if it was going to get much better than that right plus you know you're you're living the dream and when I got to college I went to Barry University for undergrad and I, I was able to walk onto the soccer team and I was the backup goalkeeper to this guy who was a senior and then um after that season, you know, he graduated and then we got a new coach and the new coach brought in this goalkeeper from the school he was at, who was like six foot three. And there I am five ten when I stand up straight. And I realized that my career in 1988 as a soccer player was over because there was no professional soccer in America. And the concept of an American playing overseas was just, you know, we hadn't reached that level yet. Um, my band broke up around the same time and somebody took me to see a play at school. I went to the party afterwards and I was like, oh, these are the people who don't play sports anymore and don't aren't in bands anymore. They're in theater. And so for a while, it felt like a nice fit because it seemed like a group of misfits who were good at other things, but those things, those candles had kind of burned out. And so they ended up in the world of theater. And oh. that's, that's really where discipline kind of came into play. And I thought, oh, I can be a lawyer. I can be a doctor. I can be a drug addict. I can be a musician. I can be a soccer player. I can be all those things. And I don't have to be Paul. Because at that point, I wasn't really interested in being Paul. I was interested in being some cloak and dagger version of Paul, you know? Yeah. You were going through a metamorphosis in your life. It seems at that point anyway. So totally. Um, yeah. 
Important question. Were you a singer? Did you play an instrument? <laughs> no, I can't sing at all. I, I'm totally, I mean, I had, a, I had a teacher in the second grade who told me I was tone deaf. And oh. She told me to never sing again. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so what instrument did you play? I started, I started on guitar because I wanted to learn the theme song from Happy Days. And uh, I was really young and it hurt my fingers a lot. You know, like I didn't, I, I couldn't get the chord changes the way that like Bob Dylan could, you know? So I sort of started listening to music that was more bar chord oriented, like heavy metal and like punk. So then I could start playing more like rhythm guitar, but not every band needs a rhythm guitar player. So when I was in high school at one of the three schools I was at, this kid came up to me. He's like, Hey man, I heard you have a bass. And I had just bought a bass for like 25 bucks at a pawn shop. It was like a knockoff of a knockoff of a knockoff of a Fender P bass, right? It, was, it didn't, even, didn't even have a name on it. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, we're, we're looking for a bass player. Can you come to our house to practice? And I was like, sure. And, you know, I hadn't really played the bass. But in my brain, I was like, well, it's it's the same as a guitar. It's just four strings instead of six. Thank God. And I don't have to worry about all these chord changes. I'll just boom, boom, boom the notes and I can fill in the chords there. So I kind of really became a bass player after that. But then eventually I became a drummer because somewhere along the line, I picked up a drum set and wanted to be a drummer. But again, at a, at a young age, the, the right hand's doing something different than the left and the right foot. All oh, that was a little more, more complicated. So I didn't pick that up until way later again in Mad Cat. So yeah. bass, I guess a bass player, rhythm. Anything that, that I could keep a beat, you know, hey, go play the bongo, go play the congo, here's the cowbell. You know, you're hanging out with your Cuban friends or like, you know, you know, you know just pick up a beat and roll with it. I could do that. Yeah, so if you need a little bit more cowbell... <laughs> you're the man yeah um, so but that is the same thing evolution metamorphosis exactly so so you're at DePaul yeah you're starting to fill out your space and your direction yeah I I'm talked about sparks yeah what was the spark that said okay now I'm going to move into this direction well I had a class at Barry, like I was studying, I th it was just a BA in theater. So I was learning everything, you know, like how to build sets, you know, uh, how to do lighting design um, and all these acting classes. And then my junior year, I took a directing class and all of a sudden it was like, it all made sense to me. It was like being in the backyard as a little kid alone playing with my Fisher Price and my Star Wars toys and creating these screenplays in your head. It was having the concerts in my bedroom where I've got all my plastic baseball helmets as my drum set or my tennis racket as my guitar. And I'm living out this fantasy of having a band. It just made sense to be able to look at something. And all of a sudden I would get a vision. Like I, we'd read a play and she, and the, my, my professor, uh, Miss M, she would be like, all right, now pick a scene and stage it. And I would see all the scenes. 
and it would be easy. It was not, not easy, but like I could, I could see the vision come to life. So when I would talk to the actors, about, All right, you're going to come in here, you're going to come here. That's the door. That's the couch, blah, 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 blah. And then I would go see plays and movies and I would start to see it not from an actor standpoint, but from the whole picture. And it made my acting better. And then I started working with this professional company that's still around to this day called Area Stage Company uh, with John and Maria Rodas. Yeah, it's legend. Yeah. And I was uh, I was a I was a pup. I was like 20 and they took a chance on me with their second production and they they cast me um, in a production of True West. And and we became like really good friends and and i it was like a second education so i had barry going and then i had area stage where john and maria would be like all right on this show uh you want to do the lights and i'd be like yeah i want to do the lighting design it's like all right all right let's let's figure it out or he'd be like all right you're going to stage manage the show and i'm like great so not only was i learning all day long but then i was learning all day at night and it was just like you know i was just yeah not- so you were learning in the school setting and that was you know more academic and you were in the real setting totally you were actually doing it so yeah. you were more like moving as a total artist even from you know your step into the industry yeah it wasn't just about acting anymore and i was kind of relieved actually because I didn't see my acting when I was in bear, when I was just at bear, I didn't see my acting as really progressing. I felt like I was just imitating. Um, And then when I started working with John and Maria, it was like, Oh, you know, it was, it was much more um, precise. It was much more exacting, you know, it was much more like, yeah, that's close, but let's keep, Let's keep finding out what's there. They were very meticulous about layers. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so yeah. It, it wasn't any more about like, I'm angry, I'm sad. It wasn't Commedia dell'arte. It was more like nuanced. And yeah. um, that exposure. And then I started reading a lot of, like I stumbled upon Beckett and Pinter. Pinter really, well, actually Joe Orton first because because of my love of punk music, right? When Sid and Nancy came out, the Alex Cox film in 86, I saw it three times, three days in a row at the Riviera Theater when it used to be a movie theater, which ironically is now where Area Stage is. But I would drive from Broward all the way down to the Riviera because it was like the only movie theater playing it. And I saw Sid and Nancy three times. And that was the first time I saw Gary Oldman because that was his first major released film. Yeah. And I just thought that's the greatest actor I've ever seen. That isn't yeah. Martin Brando or, you know, Montgomery Cliff or somebody from the fifties. Yeah. Well, so, again, his next, so his next film was about Joe Orton, this British playwright. Mm-hmm. And so I went and saw that. And then John and Maria were doing a production of a Joe Orton play. So that was also my kind of kismet moment into that. But yeah, anyway, so- yeah, no, no, no. It's perfect. This is a great segue because my podcast partner, JL Martinez, has just joined in. So we're just. Hey, guys, gonna, how are you? <laughs> we're going to roll, roll this straight in. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, obviously, a Miami story. I was driving. I was super on time and all the red lights started going off in my car. The engine cooling, like it was just like everything that possibly could go wrong 
went wrong with my car. So I had to pull over real quick into the shop and get it fixed. But that delayed me an extra 30 minutes, unfortunately. It's okay. But I, uh, yes. Here but we I, are. To see this with Paul, because, you know, obviously I've, you know, seen your track record and everything you've done in film and in theater. Uh, and it's, you know, it's just such a beautiful story. So I'm, I'm happy that I could at least catch the second half of it. <laughs> yeah, we, we started a little bit late. I kind of dragged out the regular conversation. I didn't drag it out because we had to, you know, catch up and stuff like that. But I think that this is a, a great segue because we were talking about Mank yesterday. Oh, okay. Which is, you know, phenomenal film. It's one of those films that either you love Gary Oldman or you, you if you're not a Gary Oldman fan, you're, you're going to like the movie because of, you know, the esoterics of it and everything. But if you're a Gary Oldman fan, you're going to love the movie because yeah. it's a tour de force for him. He's one, one of my favorite actors, too. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, I'm, th- I'm there with you on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was great. It was amazing. Yeah. Movie. I loved it. So moving from Sid and Nancy yeah. to uh, what is to be, you know, your career, Barry University, and then you stepping into the scene. So was that a moment where you evolved in the theater or had you already started stepping into the TV and film world by that point? Can you just no. Now, TV and film in the late 80s and early 90s, I, 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 I didn't grow up going to the theater. You know, like I didn't grow up with theater parents. I, we went to the movies. You know, my parents would be like, hey, we're going to go see. Uh, <laughs> we would used to go to all the drive throughs because that way they could see R-rated movies and not worry about sneaking drive-ins. In. Yeah, the drive-ins. Yeah, so they're we, back now. <laughs> I know. So we used to see stuff like... Um, uh, Midnight Express, you know, you remember that film? Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Right. So like, I'm like nine years old in the back of my parents station wagon <laughs> watching this tongue get spit out on film. Uh, right. They took me to see The Shining when I was 11. You know, I saw oh my God. Saturday Night Fever, Jaws. I saw all the big, epic, amazing American 70s movies. And I was wow. hooked to the gills. By the time I graduated high school, I saw every film that had won best picture from 1950 to whatever that year was. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's uh, it's what we called in film school, the decade under the influence. I think there was a documentary about that. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, these studio movies that really felt so visceral, like Indies and, and they just took so many chances. Like you said, during that decade, whether it was one flew over the cuckoo's nest, Mm -hmm. all the president's men, you know, it was just like one after another uh, of these films culminating, I guess, I don't know when the end of that decade, you know, maybe Raging Bull was probably like the cornerstone that kind of marked the beginning of the 80s. But it was just such an incredible run for indie filmmakers and actors to really spread their wings and do studio fare that really felt so gritty and indie. Uh, It was an incredible time, I think, for the industry. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. So so that mixed with Sid and Marty Croft. okay. Uh, HR Puffin stuff, the banana splits, the Donnie and Marie show. Man, go back and watch the Donnie and Marie show. And you want to talk about interesting other side of the pillow POV? Do you know what I mean? Like conservative, like 
family value entertainment to kind of co like to go against this kind of liberation that's sort of happening in like the late under the Carter administration. And this yeah. is like the counter of it. And you look at the producers and it's Sid and Marty Croft. You gave me the banana splits. You're giving me <laughs> what is, you know, it's, it's interesting. So, yeah. So, so, <laughs> you know, by the time, by the time I was like, Oh, I want to be an artist film in 1988, 89, there's no way anyone is thinking Oh, I'm gonna do this. Not until Sex Lies and Videotape come out and Drugstore mm. Cowboy. But prior to that, the, the the idea that you were gonna be a filmmaker, that's something that only rich, entitled, connected people were able to do. So to me, I thought, well, theater, it's right here. Let's build some sets. You know, it's practical, it's tangible. I can put my hands on it. So I went into a career of theater only because of my love of film and music and not thinking that it was something tangible that I could do unless I was rich. So I thought, yeah. well, if you make the money, then you can make your own stuff. Yeah, now, because film, you shot it on film. So, right. you know, and then you have the processing and the equipment. It was super expensive. Yeah, so. and, and now I can make a film for less than $10,000, you know, yeah. which is yeah. cheaper than putting on a play. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like it's like, you know, it's all, it's all changed. It's again, like what we've been talking about the whole time, adapt or die, you know? You're, you're right. Yeah. I guess indie film is now the new off Broadway. <laughs> off, off Broadway. Off, off, off Broadway. Right. Off, off yeah. Broadway. <laughs> Coming soon to a YouTube channel near you. All right. So, yeah. so back to, um, back to school. So was there, there was a, good a, a period. Yes. Good yes. film with Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> um, there was a period, was there a period between Barry and graduate school that you, you know, worked with area stage and. I, I was working with them the whole time. And, oh, and wow. I, and uh, uh, I had a professor at Barry my last semester, uh, Michael Joya, who um, is an actor in town and uh, director and, you know, Michael said to me, Paul, what are you going to do after you graduate? And I was like, I don't know. I've been working at area stage. I'll just kind of hang around here. And he's like, no, 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 no. You got to go to grad school. And I was like, why? He's like, because right now you're a jack of all trades and a master of none. He's like, you know a lot about, because you know a little bit about a lot of things, but you don't know a lot about one thing. And I was like, okay. So, all right, well, grad school. Okay. You know. That's for smart people, you know, <laughs> that's for rich people. And then I found out about student loans and I was like, oh yeah, sure. No worries. Let's do this. So he sat down with me and we looked at pros and cons of different schools that I wanted to go to. And we settled on Goodman, DePaul. I wanted to be in Chicago. I didn't really want to be in New York and it didn't seem like LA was, you know, in the eighties, I was just watching that that documentary on Netflix last night, The Night Stalker. And and my mom and dad were like commenting about like how they don't really remember that story. And I was like, well, you know, think about the time frame. This is pre-internet. This is pre-massive cable channels. And, you know, L.A. at that time, if you grew up in Miami, seemed like another planet unless you had family there. You know, like I never thought I was going to get to L.A. It just seemed like that's a dream. So I was like, let's go to Chicago, you know, and I was obsessed with Chicago, I think partially because of John Hughes films 
you know, in the eighties, <laughs> I was like obsessed with them. And then Steppenwolf theater company was the other reason I wanted to go. And so I looked at all these actors that I had loved growing up who had studied at Goodman and DePaul. And I thought, you know what, this is, this is a good, good fit. But I went pretty much right from undergrad, right into grad school. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. I didn't take any time off. Yeah. Chicago is one of my favorite cities. I lived as a child outside of Chicago as, yeah. and as adult um, in Chicago proper. Yeah. So, you know, it's like New York as cosmopolitan as New York, but without all of the hustle, as much of the hustle and bustle of New York. Yeah. So, you know, you get the best restaurant, you get the best theater. It really has, you know, this old feeling to the town. Just not that New York is pretentious. Yeah, but it, it can tend to be, but, you know, a little less of that. I, my, so. my feeling about New York was that the theater that I was seeing in New York was, was good theater, but there was a major disconnect. If you don't live in New York, it's a, there's a major disconnect between Broadway, off-Broadway, and then just theater, right? Mm-hmm. And having been involved and directed a show in New York it was so hard to get people to come because you have to pay to play. You're paying to get critics to even come review your shows. So to me, I was like, if you see theater in Chicago, people go see anything in Chicago. Yeah. I mean, they'll go to a midnight play that costs eight bucks and they bring their own six pack. And it's like an episode of Scooby-Doo and you're like, holy shit, that's theater. (laughs) So, so to me, Chicago was way more, cutting edge in terms of volume right yeah where in new york it's like you know we've got the good stuff and then there's all this other stuff that we don't really want you to know about yeah and new york is i mean you know chicago is a blue collar town you know it is midwest i lived in new york too and and i love new york it's one of my favorite cities in the world but the sensibilities are different yeah. And so that and that makes a lot of sense what you're saying. You know, people will go to a show in Chicago for the love of the theater. Right. It doesn't have to be, you know, the name or oh this is the the up and coming that you have to go see that play or you know all, again the pomp and circumstance. So so you're in Chicago. And I'm not huh? But I'm not saying that people I just want to make sure, make this clear. I'm not saying that people in New York aren't don't love theater. They do. No, they do. I mean, they do. As an outsider, you know, you're either a New Yorker or you're not. There's too many people who've moved from South Florida to New York who try to act like they're New Yorkers. And let me tell you, you're not. You're just not. Yeah. So I didn't ever really want to be in that category of like, oh, you're not one of us. It just felt a lot of turf kind of crap where in Chicago, it's like that just didn't exist. You could you could just go there and be anybody. Are you good? Let's move forward. Yeah. So. um, So you're in Chicago. You're learning. Yeah. You're evolving. You're metamorphosizing. What happens? Um, I'm there as an actor and they tell me you're not a leading man. You're a character actor. And I was like, what? They're like, yeah, you're not a leading man type. And I was 22 years old and 
you know, I, I, I had never seen myself as a leading man, but I hadn't seen myself as a character actor where you want me to shave my hairline and play the old man and prelude to a kiss. Like I'm too young for that. I'm 22. Like I wasn't prepared to start playing dads, grandpas. I didn't want to do that. So I convinced them that my real focus had shifted and that I really should have applied to the school to get in as a director. And they're like, well, we don't do that here. You're going to have to reapply. And I was like, well, hold on. You usually take three directors a semester and one of them didn't show up and one of them already quit. So you only have one director. You know, I'm already here. I'm paying tuition. And I'm saying, can we work this out? A little bit of a deal. And they're like, all right, we'll put you on probation. And if you do well, then we'll, you know, your second year will fully make you a, a directing major. And I was like, awesome. Awesome. And that moment that I fought for what I wanted and spoke up and was able to convince an, an organization the size of the Goodman School of Drama with their reputation, that my intentions were, were honest. You know what I mean? Like they were sincere. I was like, I'm too young to be a character actor. I can't, my brain can't handle it. I'm too immature. <laughs> you know, like help me, please let me do this. And I can still study acting and take all these design classes and sort of continue that sort of all around education that I was looking for, which is, I kind of wanted to open my own theater. You know what I'm saying? Like I knew that I wanted to do that in that moment and that this was the channel to do that. Yeah. That's when I, when I attended the university of Miami, um, you know, they had their kind of set program, Yeah, but every semester I'd take an independent study. And what that independent study allowed me to do was to get the equipment whenever I wanted to get the editing suite, whenever I wanted to get the editing suite, I took 21 credits. So I was piling on credits and I was um, sitting in on classes. So at the time I went, the computer graphics and animation was in the school of engineering. So I'd run across. So I kind of made my own. Yeah. uh, major in a way. And right. You know, and we talk about exactly, evolution and metamorphosis. That's what you have to do. That's exactly what I was trying to do is get as many acting classes, as many design classes so that I could work with all these great instructors who had worked at Steppenwolf and had worked with Mamet. You know, I, I got to work with John Jenkins who worked with Samuel Beckett and you know, to be one degree separation from Samuel Beckett was just an education in and of itself, you know, and Nan Sabula Jenkins, uh, she was David Mamet's costume designer on his first three films and all of his early plays. And, you know, these are people who you can have a conversation and talk about like what their journey was, what their evolution was, what their process is, because, you know, they're no different than you. They're just older and they've taken those risks. They've, they've, they've had the, the ability to do what you're trying to do, which is adapt and learn. Well, it's, it's funny that we're bringing that up because, you know, I, I went to UM as well. I was a motion picture major and uh, I, I ended up double majoring in theater arts. Uh, and essentially what I saw was, you know, I got the craft and the business part from the film school, but the art, the creativity, the performance, the preparation, all that story stuff, I actually got it from the theater side. 
Yeah. Uh, and during that time, there wasn't a lot of crossover. So there were all these film students looking for actors for their work. And I'm like, dude, there's a whole theater department like right there. Yeah. And, and, and a great one at that. Each other. Yeah. You know, I, I remember old man. You remember Ken Kurtz? He was the art directing teacher. Uh, and he was it was, it was interesting, man, because like this tough, like man's man, chain smoking guy in the back of the ring, ring theater with no shirt on conservative politics. And he came out as gay later in life <laughs> to divorce his wife. Yeah. Uh, and, and just <laughs> such an awesome, funny guy. He says, you know, the only reason I can't vote Republican now is because I'm gay. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Evolution. Metamorphosis. You remember Ken? <laughs> oh, sure. I, I taught, I, I taught at UM for God, three years. Oh, wow. And then I had a really good buddy who went to the film school there, Eli Peck. And it was one of those things where he would be like, Hey, I'm doing a student film. You want to be in it? I'm like, hell yeah. I want to be in a student film. You know, as a theater kid, as an actor, you know, do I want to do another play reading? God, no. But be in your film. Sure. Have footage of myself that I can, you know, like, yeah, absolutely. So you're totally right about that. Like, like that wealth of, of pool of talent to get is right there. And I'm a big believer in, you know, theater actors and the ability of theater actors to maneuver into TV and film, their performance level, you know, it can be a, a lot of energy oftentimes, but you can bring a performance down. It's kind of hard to, you know, go the other way around. One of the things and part of the other reason that I focused on Chicago instead of New York as an actor was that concept is that L.A. loves Chicago actors. They don't really like New York actors because most New York actors are focusing on song and dance and very large performances where Chicago, you know, you're in a storefront, you're doing all this other stuff. There's more of a nitty gritty, like you said earlier, blue collar kind of believability that's easier to translate into that New York kid. Who's like, you know, people who focus on New York as a career is in theater. They have a very specific idea of what they want to do. They're not looking at it from this broader perspective, the way that you are if you're in Chicago or, you know, North Carolina School of the Arts or, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, if your goal is, yeah. When when you're thinking Broadway and you're thinking New York, well, you have to be that full rounded sing, dance, you know. More so than than acting. Yeah. Yeah. Because the big stage performances. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you can get, I mean, how many times have you seen a Broadway show, like a musical and you're like, God, the acting's horrible. And then the person <laughs> next to you will be like, but they sing so good. Who's, who's watching the acting? And you're like, all right, relax. All right. It's I kind of overwhelming. So, you know, you're, you're just kind of caught up in the whole, you know, one, yeah, one it's, time. A, it's, a, it's a spectacle of it all, which, yeah. is, you know, the, the way I compare Broadway and New York is like, you know, Broadway is to New York what big visual effects movie is to Hollywood. It's like, ignore the performance. This is Michael Bay. This is like Transformers exploding in midair. You know, this is not about the nuance of the performance. And I but think yeah. the big problem- like that stuff, then like, I, I, I hate Michael Bay. Like to me, Michael Bay is the death of cinema. You know what I mean? He's responsible for it. You know, I remember him bragging when The Rock came out about there's no, there's no shot in my film that's like longer than 40 seconds. And he was proud of that. 
Okay. The MTV music video generation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, oh. yeah, that, that, that really changed the dynamic of a film, you know, these big, you know, blockbusters, tentpole films and stuff like that. Um, yeah. but, I, what, you said that, but earlier, tell me again, tent, tentpole films, tent, tentpole films. Yeah. I've never heard that. Can you, oh, you have break, it? That, break that down for me? Yeah, no, I mean, that's just films that uh studio can build their entire tent under. So that's your huge blockbuster films they'll and think, franchises that's like harry potter you okay. know star wars anytime one of those movies come out that's your tentpole that's your ringling circus attraction that's the main attraction that's going to drive folks to the theater without knowing anything about the story or the trailer that name star wars or harry potter comes out you know you're going to drive an audience and right. oftentimes it's what will give the studio the big line share of their money so it's, you know, those films that, you know, they're shooting for a billion plus. Joker turned it on its head because Joker only cost 60 million. And it, it was a kind of a smaller film that made over a billion. But only. These ten- <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, only. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. I know, I know. But I know. compared to, you know, the canon of where the Joker comes from and, you uh-huh. know, films that are $200 million, it was a smaller budget. But, you know, these huge tentpole films, you know, what we were talking about before is, you know, Hollywood makes fewer films now, but it's not like the amount of money is not still the same. It's just there's more money that goes into these tentpole films. I think Lord of the Rings was one of the first that started a bigger trend of this, which, you know, they shot at all three films at the same time. Yeah. They kind of sunk all, you know, their bigger lion's share of the budget into that of that studio into those films and from that point forward, now Lord of the Rings, I, I loved it because it was a, you know, it was a mix of the acting was, you know, great, but also the visual effects, the story, it was Tolkien. Other tentpole films, on the other hand, oftentimes, you know, yeah. don't don't meet that mark. But, um, you know, that's that's what's in some ways transformed the, the industry. And then we'll talk yeah. about, you know, streaming and all that stuff a little bit later. I want to. I, I, that's what I thought you meant. I just, you know, I. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm one of these people who's like, I don't like to use phrases that I don't totally know what they mean. <laughs> right. And like, I seriously like, and as an educator, like, my big thing with my students is always like, if you don't know what that word means that you're saying it, and somebody at a casting office or in a table read in Hollywood, and you don't know what that word means, unless your name is Tom Cruise, you're fired. Yeah. Right. Because Tom, Tom Cruise is one of the very few people who can get away with mis, mispronouncing words and yeah. no one will ever correct him. And it's fine because guess what? He's, <laughs> he's involved. In, he's his own tent pole. You know, what yes, I, he's <laughs> a tent pole unto himself. <laughs> he is. Yeah. So, um, you know, so we're at the Goodman School. Mm-hmm. You had not done anything in front of the camera yet no. at that point. No. Were you thinking about it? Um, No, I was totally emerged, emerged, immersed, immersed, immersed in the Chicago White Sox, uh, who were hotter than hell in 93 and 94 before the strike. Um, So any spare time I had was either going to watch the White Sox game or um, going to the theater. And really seeing great theater from the Goodman to Steppenwolf to um, Straw Dog to um, this company that I got to work with, Shattered Globe. And these were all, you know, committed 
actors who were not getting paid for some of these things. Like the concept of don't quit your day job, but the theater becomes your mistress, your band. This is your group. That was what my brain was about. So in my head, I was like, once I graduate, I'm going to move back to Miami. I'm going to start a theater company in this desolate, empty void between big musicals and what was just starting to happen, which was um, Gable stage. Because I grew up with John and Maria and, and watching Acme and watching these smaller, more independent theater companies. There were three, there was, or four. There was John and Maria, right, with Aria. There was Acme Acting Company. There was Raphael and Kimberly Diaccio with New Theater. And there was this other group called Art Act. So there was like these four little tiny groups in the 80s and the early 90s. And that's what I would go see. I, 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 I didn't grow up with going to see Hello, Dolly. I, I couldn't believe that somebody would want to see that. I couldn't believe that people would go in droves to see 42nd Street and Annie and all these old deadbeat crap that they had heard their whole lives. And that didn't make sense to me until I paid $250 to see the Eagles three years ago. And I'm like, oh, this is the same as somebody going to see Showboat for like the 40th time. Here I am, you know, at, at an Eagles concert, half the band's dead or gone, you know, and I'm watching Don Henley and like Glenn Fry's son. It was nuts. It was nuts. Yeah. And so, so that I'd lived long enough, you know what I mean? To where rock and roll was like, oh, we're, we're going to go see Don Felder solo at the casino of blah, 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 you know, isn't really any different than a bunch of old people going to be like, well, I can't wait to see what happens in Oklahoma again. You know, it's, this, it's yeah. the same old crap. You're paying for nostalgia. Okay. And you're paying for, for that thing that you've already achieved. Like people who keep going to Disney world. I'm like, is there a new ride? And they're like, no. And I'm like, well, what are you doing? Like, are you, like go somewhere else. Yeah. Well, you know, that, you, that's something <laughs> that feeling, you know, you want to get that feeling again, you know, know. recapture, recapture that feeling. And there's or in the case of Disney, when you have kids in my case, where well, you, yeah. you have, you have to relive the experience. <laughs> for their well, you're only living it in a different way. You're living yes. it through your kids. Yeah. Thankfully they added alcohol to most of the parks now. So that <laughs> helps. <laughs> right. Another <laughs> revenue stream. You know, and again, if you've got kids, that's cool. But by the same token, it's a lazy generation who doesn't want to say to their kids or a financially struck generation who's like, I can't afford anything else. But, you know, the point being that corporate America and corporate theater and corporate film doesn't want you to know about Drugstore Cowboy, doesn't mm -hmm. want you to know about Citizen Kane. Let's go far that far back. Speaking of man, yeah. you yeah, know, yeah. like. Well, well, I don't know. Like, it's like what happened to Spike Lee when Do the Right Thing came out and got like one nomination or two nominations. And, yeah. You know. Or X or, you know, now he's getting his comeuppance. Yeah, but, but it's interesting that you mentioned classic films because I wanted to ask you this and get your feedback. Like this whole idea now, you know, going with popular culture now, like this sort of revisionist thing of going back to these older classic movies and sort of now saying we have to edit this out. Now this film is racist. It can't be seen anymore. You know, even now Disney Plus is a, a big hullabaloo because kids can no longer watch like Peter Pan because it's racist. Um, you you know, put a so, disclaimer in front of it and then just Right, and, and they did, but now on top of the disclaimer They're saying, okay, it's no longer available on the kid's account it can, uh, You have to be an adult that kicks play 
And then you decide whether or not your kid can watch it, even though it was made, you know, 60, oh, 80 years I ago, didn't, whatever. I didn't know that, but uh, yeah, they yeah, took it that far now. Yeah, wow. absolutely. <laughs> um, okay. I mean, look, if Peter Pan was written with the intention to keep someone down or if it's inciting hate or promoting hate or racism on some level, then that's something that you should think about. If you're talking about something that was socially acceptable at the time, that was a, 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 a norm of society, now you're talking about censorship. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, I, I'm just not a fan of censorship. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a fan of promoting some hate work either. But like, you know what I'm saying? Like... Well, you look at Birth of a Nation now for as as a, you know, for instance, that was used to be lauded at film schools, like just for its filmmaking. But then again, you know, they, they would take, uh, you know, some of some of the other sort of uh, triumph of the will, for example, this propaganda documentary by the Nazi party. And oh, you could break it down technically, you know, as, you know, brilliance in filmmaking. But the message it was trying to convey was overtly something that, you know, was, you know, could have destroyed I, the world. Yeah, but let, I, I, I feel that as an artist, I don't have a responsibility other than to tell my truth, all right? And if it appeals to you, great. If it doesn't, that's fine. I, you know, unless I'm beholden to some shareholder or some investor or some clause in my script that's like, don't offend people you know, and then I go ahead and I offend people, then that's me and them. And you have every right to sue me and shut down my film. But if I'm just like paying for my own project and I put up a play and it's called, you know, uh, Richard Nixon, not such a bad guy. Don't we need that POV? Isn't it, important? Right. Isn't it important to have someone who can show a mirror of another side? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, in other words, Joker that you brought up before didn't cost as much as, you know, Batman 75 or Superman 22 or whatever crap Marvel's making. Um, Jesus, they're horrible. Oh my God. <laughs> well, we'll get into that and then we'll get into that later. But, uh... but, you know, I just think that like theater runs into this problem. You know what I mean? Where you go to the theater and you see a play and you're like, the Nazis are bad. The Nazis are bad. And I'm like, Okay, I agree with you. What's next? Like, when do we get to the point where here's a story about a guy and a girl who love each other, but they just happen to be Nazis? Yeah. Are we not allowed to tell that story? Well, Am I not allowed to tell the story of a rich woman who wants to have it all because it's not politically correct? You know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, and one of my favorite movies of last year was Jojo Rabbit, which was, you know, a different take. They were within that realm of, you know, the Third Reich and that time period. And it was just this kind of nuanced rumination on what was going on in that time within that population. So yeah. I don't they- have a problem with that. I have a bigger problem with Inglorious Bastards, which I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So now you're saying that we should 
that it, it would be cool if there if this really happened and we killed we had a we had a Jewish section of the military that went and killed all these Nazis. Does that make it any better? Or are we now saying that we eat what we or we reap what we sow? Do you know what I mean? So that everybody who's ever been persecuted now has the opportunity to to persecute someone else, an eye for an eye. You know, like we get a little sketchy here in terms of justice. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, but I, for me. Also, and you know, you mentioned triumph of will, birth of a nation. I, I actually talked to my students about both of those films with historical perspective and the power of creating a story, of telling a story, triumph of will, which was so well crafted that it helped to turn the tides of that particular situation. Birth of a nation, it was so well crafted that that helped turn or move that move that movement. So, you know, when, when, when you think about these things in terms of historical perspective, also, you know, there's some relevance and some importance. Yeah. But every artist has an opportunity to say yes or no. So in other words, if the Republican party comes to me and they say, Paul, listen, we love your work. We want you to make a film that is a propaganda piece, just showing how great it is to vote Republican and all the benefits of people like Mrs. Green and that Donald Trump has brought to society, like all these great things about oppression and racism and systematic racism and, you know, fear of homosexuality and fear of women with brains. We want you to make a film of that. Here's a million dollars. Oh, and you get to pocket a million dollars. At that moment, I have every right to say no. Yeah. Now, if I'm Lenny Riefenstahl and it's the 30s and I'm a woman and I'm never going to get any work as a director and you come to me and you say, hey, Lenny, you're a genius. Adolf would like to pay you. Would I do what she did if I was a woman in that time period and I really wanted to get my work done? And I don't really know what your politics are because nobody really knew what. At, at that point, yeah, yeah, no one really knew, you know, how you know, horrid. It's not like they showed her like films of the gas chambers and she was like, oh, yeah, that's no big deal. Like she didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. And it wasn't even at that point at that time anyway. But yeah. And, and nationalism in that country. It kind of needed to happen. Those people after World War One were left with no help nothing. The whole world walked away. And that's the lesson between World War I and World War II. Because one of the greatest things that the Americans ever did was staying in Germany post-World War II, because that's our ally. The bond that happened between America and Germany, you go over there and you talk to people who live in Berlin, we're, we're liked over there because we did the right thing. Post-World War I, nobody was willing to help them. So guess who did? The worst person on the planet, Adolf Hitler. And so because there was nobody watching and nobody helping and nobody taking care of, some evil prick decided, oh, I'll do this. I'll just come up and incite violence. But I won't tell you it's violence right away. I'll tell you, you've had your job stolen. I feel for you. So, yeah, I mean, is it dangerous? Absolutely. Is it brilliant in its execution and concept? Totally. So, of course, you have a responsibility on some level to talk about that film and acknowledge it. The point is, is that we have to be mature about how we view 
that material and and don't walk out of there going, oh, I'm going to make my own propaganda film. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, right. that's not why we're showing that film. That's not why we're talking about it. Well, I talked yeah. to them about it, but, um, you know, I'm not... Right. <laughs> anyway, I know what I'm so, saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So let's let's kind of see what was the spark that moved you into the acting field in front of the camera. Um, I moved back to Miami in. I don't know, 96, 97, something like that. We had a terrible heat wave in Chicago. It was awful. It was like 110 degrees every day and couldn't handle it anymore. I was like sitting in a bathtub with cold water until I had to go to work every day. Like yeah, I was in Chicago at that time. They had a heat yeah. wave. It was the hottest in the country. They had to bring in yeah. trucks for the dead bodies. It was just crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. So that drove me out of Chicago. The heat believe it or not, drove me crazy. And I said, well, I'll go back to Miami and kind of, I don't know, get a SAG card, reboot, and then go back to Chicago or maybe New York. I still the heat drove you to back to the heat of Miami. That's right. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, I started hooking up with the uh, area stage again with John and Maria, started doing some work for them. Um, and... I felt like I had unfinished business in Chicago. I felt like, you know, I ran out of there because of the heat wave. And um, I didn't really see Florida at that point really still was kind of stagnant. It was still the same. Like it wasn't, it hadn't really changed that much. There was no film industry in Florida at all. None. Like this is like post vice and pre nothing. <laughs> it yeah. was like it's no always been point. ebbs and flows, valleys and peaks. With and Miami. this was one of those valleys, like 96, 97, right? So um, I moved back to Chicago and was 27 years old. And so, like most 27 years old, you start thinking about so Orson Welles made Citizen Kane at 24 and <laughs> River Phoenix was already dead at this point. And what have I actually accomplished? And I had a master's degree and I had done some work professionally as an actor and a designer, mostly with area stage. Um, but I felt like I had lost out on life. Like I was meeting people who had gone to Vegas for three years and were like blackjack dealers, you know, and like got on crystal meth and, took a bus ride, you know, from Reno back to Miami, you know, or people who just moved to New York and tried to survive, you know, on $175 a week acting dicks, you know, like I, I was impressed with people who had not done what I had done. Cause I had done the education K through grad school. It was like no break. And so I finally had this break and I was like, what do I want to do? What do I want to be? Where do I really want to go? What do I do? And I went back to Chicago looking for answers that I thought were there. I didn't really get any except to go back to Florida. And when I went back to Florida, I thought, well, I should get a teaching job because that'll help pay the bills. So I knew Octavio Campos, um, who was a legendary, uh, even back then, um, performance artist in Miami. And he's like, Oh, let's get you hooked up at new world. And so I sat down with Jorge Guerra and, uh, you know, I applied for a 
part-time teaching job and he hired me. And so then like the next seven years, I was teaching part-time at New World. And then um, I was involved in a theater company for a couple of years, but no, it was, it was a year. And then I got out of that company. And in 2000, at 30, I was like, all right, it's time to start a company. And I'd known Beth Boone for a long time. And I lived Miami Light on Project. Bis- yeah. And I lived on Biscayne and 34th. So the theater was like four blocks from my house. And she's like, Paul, Paulie, you've got to come over and see this space. You know how Beth's energy is. You know yeah, I mean? you sound just like she's, her. Great. Uh, yeah, she's got this great energy, especially when she's excited about something. And she was like, you got to come over. You got to come over and check it out. And I did. And she's like, I'll let you do a show in here. Blah, 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 blah. And, you know, the brain just started going. I can see this. I can see that. We could turn this. We can blah blah blah. Ooh, we can use that. That's an that's that disadvantage is an advantage. And all the little things I had learned from John and Maria that I had learned at DePaul that I had learned at Barry, how to overcome these obstacles, how to adjust. It all started to make sense. And Miami in two thousand, okay, on Biscayne and thirty fourth, I was paying four twenty five a month. Right. Okay. In in 10 years, it went from 425 a month to 750 a month. And then when I moved back in 2014, my landlord's like, yeah, I can get you back in there for 1100. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, the jobs. Okay. So then I was teaching at New World part-time. I didn't even have a full-time job. I was teaching there part-time and I started Mad Cat. And then it was like, you know, I started working all the time. Gable Stage, Actors Playhouse, uh, some other theater, you know, new theater I was working at. I was working at, um, not Palm Beach Drama Works yet, but um, Florida Stage, you know, and I'm working with guys like Lee Blessing, right, on an original play. Like, I remember this. 2001, I get cast in, in this play called Black Sheep, and it's a world premiere by Lee Blessing, right? This American playwright legend. And I thought, that's it, I've arrived. Because my name will now be, I can go to New York, I can go to the Broadway publishing store, you know, or one of the, the drama bookshop, and I can pick up the copy of this play and it'll have my name in it. And that honestly was like a huge goal as a kid. It was like, wow, who are these actors? Someday I want to have my name in a in a play. And like once I achieved that, I was like, all right, now I gotta now I gotta f- figure new goals. And it was like, yeah. let's get my SAG card. And so I had did this play at Gable Stage for Joe Adler called Popcorn, in which I played uh, not the first and not the last time in my life, a serial killer. And um I had like spiky blonde, like platinum blonde hair. You know, I was riding my bike over the Julia Tuttle down to the Venetian every day. I was exercising, transforming, getting fake tattoos at a henna shop, anything I could to become this character. And I had been with like Boca Talent and a couple other agencies and never booked anything because they kept sending me out for like young dads and like good looking guys. And I just didn't fit into any of those things. But when my agent saw me in popcorn and she saw the piercings and the tattoos and the spiky hair and this insane 
energy, she said, now I know how to cast you. Now I know what you do. You're the wild card. And so at that moment, I became what then took me into everything else as an actor is that, oh, you're the wild card. You're crazy. We don't know to love you, to hate you. We kind of do both. Are you good? Are you bad? And so the things that I started doing, like Pringles commercial, you know, it was because I had this crazy long goatee. Um, I did an episode of this Showtime thing called Going to California, where I had to play a bouncer. Why? Because I had my nails painted. They wanted somebody colorful. CSI. I was a bartender. So it was like all these characters that I could play. So it, it was kind of like the other side of when I first got into acting at Barry, when I was like, oh, I can be a doctor. I can be a lawyer. I can be a necrophiliac. Uh, I can do all these crazy things. And now it was the same thing. And so Mad Cat's happening. I'm teaching. Um, I'm working as an actor in theater. Uh, I'm getting opportunities to direct some plays around town. Everything is starting to happen. I'm building a, a, a SAG card, you know, reputation of work. And all that's kind of going on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And then, you know, and then like the scene happened. Um, and then burn notice happened. And, you know, burn notice comes along and I get the audition for Barry. And I'm like, I can do something with this. Because most of the stuff I was getting was, oh, I don't know. I think he went that way. Red jacket, five, about this tile, that way. It was all information rules, like five and under crap. It's like, okay, you're one and done. But this was an audition for something that was like, I have a scene. I do all the talking. I have a name. You know, I'm not like cop number two or bad guy three. It was like, I was a character. And a reoccurring so, character too. At not point. at that. No, not at that point. Oh, it wasn't. Oh, wow. Okay. It was just, it was just a pilot. Like Miss Miami was a pilot. Like baseball wives was a pilot. Like all these big pilots that had come through that I had booked. I had booked pilots. Oh, you did. You did the pilot. Yeah. Oh, wow. But okay. I, every, every pilot I'd ever done in Miami was like, burr, burr, burr. <laughs> just, none of them ever took off, you know? Right, right. If I you're in LA, I, it's a law of averages. You're doing, you do like, you know, 10 pilots in a season. Right. I think I had done five pilots at that point in Miami that none of them had taken off. And wow. So, so I was a veteran. You know what I mean? Like I, I understood rejection at that point very well. And so I had nothing to lose. And, um, you know, I got the role and uh, I did something with the, the audition. And then, you know, um, Lori Wyman was really great in helping me. And because uh, she uh, cast the pilot um, before it had shifted uh, after that um, um, to, I uh, just drew a blank. The other amazing female casting director in Miami who of course hates my guts. Did Ellen do it? Ellen. Ellen. Ellen Jacoby. Right. Yeah. It went to she Ellen Jacoby. She took over after that. And then it went back to Lori later. But so Lori helped me, you know, and she's amazing. And if she likes you, especially she, she really pushes you and pushes. Yeah. You. I booked a lot of stuff to her. Yeah. So, so, so I get to the set and I meet Matt Nix and he's really nice. And um, 
he says to me, I really like what you're doing with this role. I really like it. I was like, great. He's like, what do you think about the script? I said, I love it. He's like, you do? I said, dude, you know how many pilots I've done in Miami? I said, <laughs> I said, this show's funny, man. This show works. He's like, why? I said, because it's like MacGyver meets Scooby-Doo. Set in Miami where you've got the best lighting in the world. How can you go wrong? And he felt really positive. And so I go and I do the, the first scene that I do in the pilot. And I ask them, is it okay if I throw in a little bit of Spanish at the end? And they're like people from LA, you know, like, you know, Spanish. <laughs> um, I was like, yeah, everybody in Miami knows, you know, a little bit of Spanish. If you don't, you're like total gringanito and no one will ever talk to you, you know? So, so I just threw in like a little something at the end, like, Oye, Miguel, cabecito, por favor, you know? And they're like, Oh my God. And they just love that. I just kind of took over the scene with Michael, um, with Jeffrey, because you know, if you're a lead in a pilot, you've got, you're in every scene. Yeah. So if you can have a scene where somebody else can do all the work and you just have five lines, they love that. And he was like, oh, just, yeah, run with it, dude. And so he let me run with that scene. Do you know what I mean? And that's yeah. what got me a recurring. And Matt called me on the phone. He's like, we got picked up. We got picked up. Oh my God. Yeah. Tell me every actor you know in Miami because you know everybody because you're Mr. Miami and I'm going to make you a recurring. And I was like, whoa. Oh, wow. So I sent him like everybody I knew in Miami, right? Everybody. I sent him bartenders from Churchill's, you know what I mean? Like I sent him every, he wanted everybody that was not on the radar. So that happens and like now I'm on burn notice and I can't wait for it to get started. And then I go into Ellen Jacoby's office for a casting and she won't speak to me. She's livid because I gave all these names to Matt Nix and she thinks I'm overstepping my boundaries and who do I think I am? I'm a nobody. And we get into it and I tell her to go fuck herself basically. Yeah. You know? And so like, we don't talk for a while. Now we're cool. You know what I mean? Um, but you know, I was doing, I'm a kid from South Florida. I just booked a recurring role on a TV show that's going to be shot here. The first TV show that's going to be shot here since Miami Vice. And the creator calls me on the phone personally and asks me who I know. If he had said jump, I'd have said how high and how many times. I don't yeah. care who the casting director is. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That was my attitude then. Now, I would probably be like, well... <laughs> why don't you check with the casting office first so i don't get in dutch with the missus you know what i mean yeah but if you don't know you don't know and, and also did. yeah and also you know i would say the way I, there was a similar story with danny wilson we talked about danny wilson you know before we started the yeah. interview a mutual friend of ours yes and um you know he did he talked to my students we did a talk with him and my students and you, you did a scene with him in Burn Notice and he talked about a scene in Burn Notice and how they told him, you know, you're going to have to step out at this time. We're going to bring in a stunt double and on. And he's like, no, I'm going to do this part. And he said the reason why he thought about that is if a stunt double comes in, the opportunity for him to get more screen time is going to be smaller. So he's like, let me just think ahead of time and go ahead and put myself in there. And he got more screen time for it but he said that you know they really appreciated that that extra extra push and it seems you know burn notice arguably is one of the biggest shows to ever come 
to ever shoot in Miami because they stayed in Miami. Yeah. And, you know, you can kind of feel, you know, how they were able to do that, the tentacles that they kind of, you know, put I mean, throughout the South Florida and, and, noticed, and outreach. Burn notice so, saved basic cable. Uh, I, did, I, I did not know that, but I know that I it mean, was one of the biggest shows on basic cable. Yeah. There, there are people in LA who will tell you like, cause because, okay, that's where we're going next. But basically, Burn Notice takes me to L.A. And everybody in L.A. is obsessed with Burn Notice. Yeah, everyone, period, was obsessed with it because it was, you know, this mix. No, but, like, I got stopped everywhere. Wow. For a recurring role on a show on USA Network. And yeah. people were talking about how, you know, at that time, nobody was watching shows on USA Network or... TNT. No, nobody was watching that original kind of programming. And that's no. not really original programming, as you guys know. They're pilots that are getting picked up by NBC, but NBC is, owns USA or, you know, or not. No, right. Fox owns USA. So they'll dump it on that. And so that whole game was going before the original programming shit started. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like buying pilots and then dumping them on your other subsidiary channels. Yeah, but I mean, what a strong character. And I think that that speaks to people recognizing you from the show because of your take and, um, you know, the way that you define that. There are some words for me that you spoke on earlier, and I kind of wanted to connect on that in, in terms of um, acting, which is you know, honesty. So, you know, you're coming from an honest place. You're creating a character that's multi-layered you know, that has those nuances and definitely, you know, you, you created that. I mean, and everything I've seen you in, you know, you, you've done that, but since we're talking about burn notice, you know, you created that. And so people remember that it leaves an indelible mark. So, yeah, it's not something that you think about when it's happening. Like, I mean, maybe some people do if you're Machiavellian or very super hyper aware of where you're at in life. But, you know, when 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 stuff's just happening, like that happened at a time when I had just left New World and I had just scrambled to find a job at UM. So like the burn notice thing kind of happened at a time when I was kind of desperate for money um, and work. And uh, I was going through personal changes. This girlfriend I had, we broke up after like six and a half years and you know, I was entering into my late thirties, which are not as cute as your early thirties, <laughs> um, as you might be aware of or encountering at this point. Uh, but you know, it, it, it came at a transitional period. And so it was an opportunity to reinvent myself again from the serial killer, younger type things that I was doing into the character actor that they told me I was going to be when I was at DePaul at 22. And I was like, I'm not a character actor yet. <laughs> well, at 37, I was ready to be a character actor, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. So you're, right. you're saying is your, your age was catching up to your career at Absolute, that point. Totally. <laughs> so it was forcing me to be mature, you know, and you get on the show and, you know, of course I knew who Bruce Campbell was and, uh, you know, um, um, Gabrielle and, and uh, uh, Sharon, I knew who they were from their previous body of work. I didn't really know who Jeffrey was. Um, 
you know, and then I saw Hitch and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I remembered him from Blair Witch 2. Did you guys see Blair Witch 2? No, no, he was in that? Wow. Yeah. (laughs) I saw that shit in the movie theater when it came out. Oh, 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 wow. I know. I love horror. I'm a a sucker for horror films. But I forgot they made that sequel, actually. (laughs) You're welcome. Right. right. (laughs) Now I'm going to have to go back and watch it. But um, yeah, so you're working with, you know, these heavy hitters. Yeah. And one of the great things was, is that the costume designer on the show and the writers on the show were all really, really cool people in the props department. And, you know, I kind of did a little bit about what Danny did, but, but a little bit in a, in a, let me earn my place first. So once I saw, okay, this is what Jeffrey's wearing. This is what Bruce is wearing what's not there. And so kind of how, like when I started Mad Cat, I was like, well, you've already got your musicals. You've got your straight from Broadway plays, like, you know, all the big hits, what isn't here. And what I didn't see was the metrosexual Miami guy that was very popular at that time. You know, is he straight? Is he gay? You know, is he bi? Is he metrosexual? You know, and sort of redefining a little bit what this character could be to make him more insecure, to make him more vulnerable, to kind of tone down the masculinity of it and kind of make it a little bit more, um, not gender neutral, because that wasn't even a phrase then, but just a little bit more risky so like i would talk to the writers after a while about well what if what if we're not sure if barry's straight or gay and they're like what do you mean i'm like well what if he was bi and they're like yeah okay so like season three there's an episode where i'm checking out a dude and a girl as they walk by the pool you know what i'm saying and the director's like, yeah, and we can do it without having any dialogue. We can do it where I just lower the glasses and I'm like, <laughs> you see this guy walk by and then it's a woman walking by. And then like season four, I have a girlfriend and, you know, they're both going, girlfriend, Barry, you know, like they're, so it's subtle, right? But it's there enough to where it adds a kind of wrinkle in the fabric. So now I'm talking to props department and they're like, okay, you're supposed to be drinking in the scene. What kind of drink do you want? I'm like, Ooh, very slender and lots of crap on the top of it. Like shit that that gets in my way, you know, so that I can kind of be like, you know, not cool maybe, or like it's very phallic almost, you know? So it's has this kind of Miami Metro like guys who are like super buff, but then drink like, you know, pina coladas, right? Like, you know, guys like that in Miami, you know, like they're like, I've seen many a guy like that. Chocolate martini. (laughs) Yeah. Right. You're like, that's very Miami, you know? Yeah, it is. Yeah. A guy can be sitting around being like super, you know, you know, Papi de Domino and, you know, but he's drinking like this like little (laughs) kid drink, you know? Right. So they were down with that. And, 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 and so it became fun. And it was like the bag, Barry's bag. I had to have it in every scene because I started finding out like, oh, bloggers were like, what's in Barry's bag? 
And I, I, that was a whole new world for me. I had never had that kind of, you know, exposure, never had that kind of um, notoriety, you know, where, listen, I'm not in the category of the top four of the show on any level. It's like you look at a, like a, a, a salary roster for a team, right? You got this millionaire, this millionaire, this millionaire, and then a bunch of people who are making like this amount of money and down, right? So there's a huge disparity because I'm not from LA. I'm a local and I'm getting paid at a local rate. So my agent is like, what's next? And at that point, you know, uh, Mad Cat was like nine years old at that point, And I wasn't pulling a salary from Mad Cat. You know, yeah, we had a lot of critical acclaim and we had, we had a core group of fans, but it wasn't paying my bills. And I was about to turn 40. And I was like, well, what, what do you suggest? She's like, do you want to go to L.A.? And that little kid in me woke up and I was like, yes, yes, I want to go to L.A. I've always wanted to go to L.A. Who am I kidding? So she called up um, a bunch of agencies in L.A. and was like, listen, I represent Paul Tay. He's Barry the Money Launderer on a burn notice. And, and I got three agencies that wanted to meet with me. And so my agent, Danielle, and I, we flew out to L.A. and we met with all of them and She's like, they all want you. Pick one. Oh, wow. Well, that's great. <laughs> and I was like, this is, this is too easy. What's this, the, nothing never happens like this for me. This can't be happening. Mm-hmm. You know, and it did happen. And I moved to LA and I booked like one of the first things I was on out there. And then I got a recurring role on this Disney show. And I mean, it just was like, it was out of it was out of this world insanity how fast things changed for me in a very short amount of time after you know a relatively long career of being in the minor leagues if you will you know yeah it was it was like it was like i was drafted high you know <laughs> from out of a small school and then i like you know, spent the next 15 years playing for the Chattanooga Lookouts in Southern, <laughs> Southern double A ball. Yeah. You're so, rubber red for the natural. <laughs> yeah. Right. Nice one. So I, so I go to, so I go to LA as like a 40 year old who was like, so green. Like the first day I get there, I got my car towed, you know, cause I didn't read all the signs on sunset I mean, it was just like one bad thing after another. Like, I just was not prepared for that at all. Like, it was amazing how green and naive I felt about the city. Meeting the meetings I was having, I, I had to really like. It was a it was a whole other education. Yeah, that that nobody could have prepared me for. Yeah, you know? that's right. Yeah, and that's you know that's what they say about L.A. It's sink or swim. L.A. is that kind of town. New York yeah. is kind of like that too, but in a different way. Um, so you were on two of my favorite shows, all time favorite shows, Burn Notice and Bloodline. Yeah. So did Bloodline happen there or here? No. So I was in LA for four years and I had a nice, I had a really nice run. Um, I was on this Disney show that I had a recurring on. Um, I did, uh, I did an episode of Franklin and Bash. I did CSI Miami out there. Um, CSI Miami out in 
out in yeah. LA, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I did this uh, episode of the show called The Butcher. I, no, not The Butcher. I can't even remember what it was. The Protector. It was for Lifetime. Um, and uh, I did well. I did an, an uh, American Horror Story. Had a had a small role, but like I was in and like... 14 scenes with uh, Sarah Paulson and you know that being on American Horror Story was like an amazing experience because we shot it mostly at Paramount Studios and then it was a lot of location stuff and I, I you know traditionally I don't really talk to a lot of actors on sets I kind of hang out more with sound props wardrobe i'm more the technical side of things because they see things that you can't see and they can help you really relax in a moment you know like if you're if you've got a good relationship with props and they can get you what you want and you need it it settles you because you know kevin if you got something in your hand you're a little bit more calmer you know what i mean if you yeah. know the camera people and you can say to them, are we in a close? Are we in a two? Where, where are we at? Like, so that's when oftentimes the director won't even discuss that with you at all. Directors don't know anything. <laughs> or, you know, even if they know, they don't, they're not as concerned not, with relaying that, you know, in, in television, right. It's a different story. If it's a film. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. I worked with, um, I worked with Mr. Frankel on, on Marley and me in a, in a wonderfully overpaid basically high-end extra role that he gave me um and he's you know that's a whole other thing where we spent five days shooting the same scene over and over and over and over again yeah you, know, you get the burn notice and it's like all right here's your mark let's rehearse it burn one burn nobody knows their lines but you and it's like <laughs> here we go all right we got the master in two moving on let's get the close-up we're doing two close-ups at one and yeah. you're learning the whole thing which is all that i teach now is what i learned from that whole other education of being on television. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to learn anything from hanging out with the actors. They're just trying to like get from one scene to the next. Yeah. Every once in a while, you'll get to spend time with them and shoot the breeze about what's going on. But when they're working, yeah. you can't, you don't, you're not going to bother them. So you're yeah. going to hang out with people who can teach you about that, about this craft that yeah. you're starting to love because you're looking at it every day and you're realizing that television is kind of closer to theater than you realize because they got seven days to put this thing together. You got to get it right. You got to memorize your lines. You got to hit your mark. You got to have a relationship with the set environment. You got to do it quickly and make it happen and boom and move on. There's yeah. not a lot of time for BS or dilly dally. And everybody's held accountable. So that's actually, you know, in terms of evolution, and we're talking about evolution and metamorphosis, after we talk about bloodline, um, oh, you know, your evolution. Sorry. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, no, it's okay. So this, so this is, you know, this we're organic as, as it gets, but you know, your metamorphosis into, you know, doing more directing for film and TV, but um, yeah. I do want to talk about Bloodline, which is one of my favorite shows of all time, actually. Okay. Um, 
So I yeah. fall out of LA. I, I can't stay. I can't figure out a way to financially make it work anymore. I can't find a teaching job. I can't, all of a sudden I'm not booking. Like the first three and a half years I was booking. And then it was like, I hit this wall and there was nothing. And I realized like, I don't know how to make a film. I don't know how to edit. I don't know how to create this hyphen that they want in LA of a stand-up comedian meets you know, couture meets film actor. I wasn't any of that crap. I was a theater guy who wrote poetry and played drums. Like they didn't want any of that crap. Right. And I went back to Miami with my tail between my legs. And like I said, nobody would touch me with a 10 foot pole. And I started working with Peggy McKinley and she's like, there's this new show. It shoots in the keys. They need a hippie coroner. Oh, wow. (laughs) I had just deconstructed Barry where I had that spiky hair, you know? Yeah. And I was like, all right, this looks got to end. So I didn't know what look to go for because my hair started thinning out. And I was like, shit, man, I don't want to be another shaved head, dude. Like, I'm not going to rock that, you know? So I'm just like, I'm just going to grow my hair until someone pays me to cut it. And then Bloodline was like, well, we need a hippie corner. So I show up with a lab coat, Grateful Dead t-shirt, and my hair all along. And my mom was a nurse and uh, a health teacher. So I sat down with her when I got the sides. And I was like, tell me what all this stuff means so that I can keep it secondhand. So I'm saying it like, I know what I'm talking about. So it's just like, you know, blah, blah, blah. Cause you don't want to be out there and like saying doctor phrases in a way, like you've said it for the first time. It has to be part of your DNA. Yeah. Next thing you know, they're like, you booked it. You're going to go down to the keys. And I shot, you know, two episodes in season one, really small stuff. And then the show took off. Um, I didn't even have Netflix at the time. I never watched it. I never saw it. And then season two happened and I'm like, Peggy, she's like, nope, they don't need you. They don't want you. I was like, isn't anybody dying on this show? I mean, how many coroners can there be (laughs) in the keys? What do you mean? They don't need me. Right. Right. And then season three comes around and I get the craziest phone call. They're like, Paul, they have a huge scene for you in season three, but they want you to re-audition for the role. Wow. I was like, the role I created? They're like, <laughs> yeah, they don't, they don't think you're a big enough name to carry the weight of this scene. They want to be sure. They want to, because it's a huge scene with Kevin and they want to make sure that you can handle it. And I was like, humbled. It was a very humbling moment. Um, and so, uh, I wasn't getting any work, (laughs) you know, things were tight and, you know, Mad Cat was entering a phase of the audience starting to turn on you where the critics are like, you think you're smarter than we think you are. We don't understand you. You're getting too weird. Um, And so I'm really, really disconnecting from South Florida theater at this point. And so, you know, I'm still holding on to whatever career I could have. So um, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. No problem. And, you know, Lori was like, we'll rehearse with you, whatever you need. Cause you know, I obviously want you to get this part back cause it's your part. She's <laughs> like, and I'm sorry that they're doing this, but this is how they are. And they were sorry, but they're like, we got to make sure. So they gave me that whole scene with Kevin to memorize. It's like 15 pages. Oh, wow. Wow. And that's, so that's something. 
And so it was starting all over again. So I go, I memorize that scene. I go to Lori's, I read it there. She calls me like four days later and she's like, they loved it. Now they want you to go to the keys and do it again for the, for the director of the episode and the creator of the show. And I was like, all right, well, before I forget these lines, right? Cause you know, <laughs> like after you do a, an audition, you usually like download that stuff and throw it away. And I'm like, oh right. my God, I can't, I can't do that with these 15 pages. And I drove down to the keys and I went to their uh, production offices in Homestead. And uh, I met the director and the creator of the show. And we just, the director was great. He was a film guy from um, Sweden. I uh, did a bunch of features. Very cool guy. Uh, we ended up hitting it off because he's a big soccer fan like I am. So we started talking soccer all the time. And, um, you know, I auditioned there in front of the, the creator, uh, one of the creators of the show and the director. And, you know, I booked it again. <laughs> <laughs> right. You booked it again. That's a. Uh... I booked it again. That's rich. It's uh -huh. rich. It's, it's rare. Very rare. Yeah. And so then they were like super cool. And they're like, okay, we want you to come down and rehearse. So I went to the keys and I met, um, I met, um, I met the actor playing Kevin. Um, Norbert. Norbert. Leo. Norbert. Norbert. Yeah. yeah. Norbert. So I meet Norbert and he is a theater guy. Nice. Right out of the gate. I didn't know this. I didn't do any research. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't want to look him up because I wanted again to kind of treat it. And normally look, if I'm going to an audition, I, I like to IMDB everybody and figure out who's what and show the respect that I do. But sometimes if now that I've booked it, I don't want to have, I don't want to be starstruck. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the first time I worked with Bruce Campbell, it was a little nerve wracking, you know? Yeah. Um, but so I meet with them and we rehearse the scene for like three hours, four hours. We get to know each other. It's, it's, it's very comfortable. And then, you know, I went down and shot that episode. They put me up for a week down in Island Marotta. Uh, the weather was great and the work was amazing. It was, um, it was like all that theater training um, really came into play. And Norbert and I, Norbert's like, Oh, I, I'm from theater too. And he's such a cool guy. And, you know, very humble as well. And I, I find out he's won like two Tony awards, you know what I mean? <laughs> and right. he's like this phenomenally talented actor who's like sings and plays guitar and he's got a beautiful family and he's just a beautiful human being and couldn't have been more the perfect scene partner. I've most like the most perfect scene partner I've ever had. You know what I mean? Oh, wow. Yeah. It was amazing. And the director was great. And, um, it was, it was theater, man. It was theater captured on, on television. And, you know, it came out and uh, I saw it and I was like, wow. <laughs> I, was, I was really pleased. Like, I, you know, like most of the time I watch my work kind of like this. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh God, I'm so fat or, you know, like, uh, you know, they use that take. And you, but that's how you learn, right? Because if yeah. you don't like what you're doing, well, shit, man, that's on you because you don't know what takes they're going to do, but you can make sure that every take that they have, you're happy with because you kick butt in that scene. And so when I saw the final product of, of Bloodline, I could see the work that we had done. I could see that dedication. I could see the commitment 
to making this the special scene that it was because in the end, and I don't, I don't want to sound braggadocious, but like, it's probably the best scene of season three. Oh, wow. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, I, I know the scene I mean, it's up there. Yeah. It's yeah. Up. No, no, for sure. For sure. And you know, I was really sad, you know, that bloodline didn't, it got three seasons and actually it, it felt complete. You know, but Bloodline did have that mix. I mean, you said theater on film or theater, you know, in in content, but it had the strong characterization. It had the story, of course, but just super brilliant performances from everyone. I think also, too, it's the the look. It was wrenching. It was wrenching, you know, and I'm not going to say I can understand why they had you audition again. You know, that's, that's, that's kind of tough. Um, you know, you're working with powerhouses, you know, Basic and Kyle Chandler, but it's, it's a business, but that scene in particular was just a, a, a tough, tough thing. And so, you know, it had to be done in such a way where it, you know, hit those notes just right. And certainly it did. The show itself, you know, did that. It was, you know, all cylinders type of type of show. Yeah. So, you know, that was yeah. a tough one to see that show go, but it was great to see you on the show. Yeah. I, I It was unfortunate, but like, that's really when the rug got pulled out from South Florida. Yeah. That, yeah. Then that's when all the films and yeah, everything. And, yeah. One show at a time. Rick so, Scott, you know, an evil yeah. guy that he was and selling us out to Atlanta and, and baller ballers, the, um, you know, the last, last show to go. Unfortunately. Yeah. That was the last, the last train to leave the station was ballers right yeah. after bloodline. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, it is kind of nice to see that, you know, you're directing for or producing writing and directing for, you know, the screen. So, yeah, well, that was, I mean, eventually it was like theater for me and Mad Cat. I was like, ah, no one's coming anymore. No one wants to see theater. None of my friends can come. They all got kids, you know, they're all like, oh, I can't, we, we can't get a babysitter. No one wants to pay $25. Everybody wants you to give them a free ticket, you know, and, and kind of like America, you know, it was like a microcosm. It was like the middle class disappeared and so did the storefront theater. And it was just gone. It was like, you were either a big house or that's it. So in 2018, um, we were now at the Miami Theater Center and um, they had just changed ownership and the new person in charge did not like me at all. Uh, she did not appreciate Mad Cat. She did not appreciate what we were about. She completely misunderstood us and she didn't really want us around anymore. And I didn't really want to deal with the abuse, quite frankly. And I said, that's it. I'm, I'm kind of done. And everybody's like, are you going to close Mad Cat? I said, no, we're just going to evolve. And we made a film that summer, um, Nostalgia. We had one showing of it there. Then we had it in um, uh, the Miami Indie Festival last year on the beach. And then I, I, I said it needs to be retweaked. And so we've re-edited it and we've cleaned up the sound. And then we hit COVID. And oh, I, yeah, so yeah. just as I was about to send this film out into the festival, you know, express world to see what we would get into, 
we hit COVID and I was like, let's pull the brakes. There's no reason to rush this. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? This will still be relevant. Let's hold on to it and then we'll dump it sooner or later. And so, as you know, it takes a long time not to necessarily make a film, but it takes a long time to make a film good. Yeah. And so the difference now, as opposed to doing three plays a year is we're basically doing like one film every three years because I, w- I had another script that we were going to shoot called the bed. And we had to put that, I mean, I was ready to go. I had scouted it. I had the script finished. I had it cast, you know, we were ready to go. And then COVID happened. And so it kind of put that on hold. We made a music video, a couple of music videos for Graham Cartridge, which is this, uh, persona that Eric Fabregat, who's a longtime member, um, does. And, you know, kind of just sort of laying low because after 18 years of doing Mad Cat and hustling as an actor for 28 years and everything else, it was like, I I just needed to get, I just needed a break. You know, I, I, I I hit a wall, like, you know, and not a wall that I know is permanent, but a wall that was kind of like, hey, it's okay to take a break from Mad Cat and this because the whole world's kind of taking a break right now. Yeah. And there is this cognitive dissonance when there is that evolution. And we talked about you know, artists evolving the metamorphosis. There's this point where, you know, there's a catharsis you're in, you know, this kind of cocoon as you're moving to the next phase. So yeah. And I can understand, you know, I have a film that my company produced and it did the festival circuit. It did pretty well, or it still is. It's still doing the circuit. It's been 11 festivals. It's won six awards. But one thing that you miss out on is the ability to go to those festivals. And so, you know, we've been in two festivals in London, Amsterdam, Spain, you know, places that wow. I would love to have gone to those places in New York, of course. Um, we had a big one in, in L.A., the uh, Slam Dance Emergence with Arclight Cinema. Oh, and yeah. I was really, really looking forward to, to hitting that. Now, lo- luckily, they just postponed that one. But that is a part of the whole experience when you have a film. And especially if you're features take a long time because, you know, you have the production part, but it's the pre-production and then the post-production. And so, you know, when you make that kind of dedication, you want to have that full-on experience, which is more than the film just getting exposure, which you need that exposure, but also connecting with, you know, people, with your peers, but, you know, distributors, you know, studio, whoever, whoever you will meet on that festival circuit. So you want to have that ability to exploit that as much as, as you can. So I can understand kind of taking the breaks. Um, yeah, know, I mean, until this whole thing is all said and done. You know, there was an argument from, from the co-writer and the editor of the film of like, let's just dump it out there now. And I was like, I, I spent too much money and time on this thing to yeah. just dump it on YouTube <laughs> where, you know, maybe 150 people are going to watch it. I said, you know, if I had a huge following, you know, that would be a different story. But I said, you know, I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to just dump it like the Beatles, man. Like, I don't want to go to America until I got a number one hit there, you know? <laughs> right. Like, I'm not comparing myself to the Beatles, but I follow no, but- kind of what they do as innovators. If you want to look at something like, how do you want to do it? I want to do it like the best. Yeah. You know I mean? 
Yeah, but that this evolution, you know, feels like it's an evolution that that was coming. And now, you know, even our industry has evolved so much. We talked before we started about now this evolution, exhibition evolution into streaming. Um, on our last Screen Heat Miami episode, we talked about I have stock, uh, AMC stock that I've had that, you know, when I bought it, it was one price and it was cut in half then it went lower, lower. And then, you know, it did pretty well in January. So, and we know that the theaters, at least AMC theater will be fine until the end of the year. So we still have the theater experience, but it almost went away. And so it was was going away as it was even before. Yeah. Even before this. And I felt that I felt that Hollywood was chasing its audience as opposed to dictating to its audience. And Mm -hmm. well, I mean, that's what happens in theater, right? Like once, once you ask the audience what they want and you don't give it to them, you start losing subscribers. Mm -hmm. So that's why these theaters are like, no, give them what they want. I'm not interested. Hello, Dolly. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not interested in that. You know what I'm saying? That doesn't interest me on any level because Mm -hmm. that is, that is fast food. Right. So in, in, in terms of, um, those films that were going into the movie theaters, it's all superheroes and green screens and PG 13. I don't live in a, films. I don't live in a PG 13 world. Right. You know, like that, what's that film that came out? Bohemian Rhapsody. So bad. And all of my friends who have kids are like, don't say that. Don't say that. I got, I finally got to listen to rock and roll again. And I'm like, well, that's your problem for catering to your children and their taste. Because when I grew up, I had to go see what my parents wanted to see. My parents didn't take me to see kids films. Do you know well, what I mean? Society has flipped. <laughs> right. So, but, but, but it's a no, but that's, that's, that's a great point because it's true. Like, like, now it's like, yeah, it's, it's the kids' generation where they dictate everything as opposed to being along for the ride. Like, you know, obviously I, I'm probably maybe a half generation later, but I remember it wasn't the films, but it was, you know, my parents could get anything on VHS and watch it at home. And I was watching Scarface. You know, and I, I couldn't watch it for 20 years after that, but if I wanted to watch it, <laughs> I could watch it. The only thing is when we were watching stand-up, like Eddie Murphy is like, all right, this sexual joke, you got to walk out of the room. You can come back for, you know, for uh, Ice Cream Man. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But you're not ready for that other part just yet. But they still expose us to it. Well, a lot of it has to do with, you know, millennials. You know, their generation is bigger than Generation X. Unfortunately, yes. This Generation Z, their generation is even bigger. So there's just a lot of them. And it's a volume. It's voluminous. So, but, you know, what I'm really excited about, like, I have seen and I can feel your aesthetic, you know, your gravitas, your chi. Um, and that's a through line of your career. And I'm really excited to see this evolution as you move into a different phase of storytelling. Yeah, me so, too. And I think it's a lot less, it's more about trusting yourself at this point. You know, I think that when I started Mad Cat and when I started writing, I didn't have the confidence to think I could just do it on my own. So I always wanted to have this sort of band, this sort of family, you know. And so some of the stuff that I co-wrote early in my career, I didn't really need to co-write that. I just didn't have the courage to write it alone. And so now, like, I've written some stuff for um, NIFA, you know, for the students to do. And 
now it's more out of necessity and need and because of experience and COVID and, you know, trials and errors and not being afraid to fail and learning things along the way and humility and, you know, what if it all goes away? Can I still, you know, do I need all this stuff? It, it, it is a transformation once again into actually at, at 52 now having more courage than I maybe had before, where before I might've had a kind of courage, but it was more steeped in blind fearlessness, right? Where now I wear glasses, you know? <laughs> Figuratively and literally. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, what I, I can't just right. be blind about everything and just say, no, nah, we're going for it. No matter what the hell with it, let's do it. You know, sometimes you have to stop a little bit and be like, all right, if this isn't going right, does anybody got a better suggestion of how this could work <laughs> and incorporating that in, and yeah. moving on? Yeah. So um, I did before we have this cap at the end of all of our episodes, but I did have one thing because, you know, as we spoke of, we really focus on the journey of mm -hmm. the person that we interview, but we do want to get at least some technical aspects. So my, my question is, as someone that has, you know, worked in different areas, I saw you even did a video game, like a voiceover for a video game. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can you talk about the differences and the similarities between you know, working within those different genres, you know, whether it's acting or directing, but, you know, we can maybe even yeah. talk about acting. I, I think the evolution for me as an actor was, um, at first it was very therapeutic. Uh, and it, I think it stayed that way for a long time. Once I got into acting for TV, uh, it changed and it became about executing like, in other words, if I was a hired musician and you said to me, all right, Paul, you're going to play this chart and you study that chart and you learn that chart and you practice that chart. And then showtime, you perfect that chart. Theater, you do that, but then you got to kind of keep it fresh every show. You got to feed off the energy of the audience. You got to feed off the energy of the cast. You got to kind of eat the same goddamn foods every day. You become like a baseball player, or a basketball player, where you're like, we've got eight shows this week. Woo, let's stay focused. Let's drink our smoothies. Let's exercise. And it becomes a habit. Where film, TV, you just got to get it right once. So every time you're doing it, you're trying to execute it perfectly because there may be an airplane, because this actor may call cut and they shouldn't have because the sound was off because your tie fell, whatever. So your job is to always do it the best you can knowing that other things around you may go wrong and you don't want to have that brilliant performance. And then they go, Oh shit, we got to go again. I had an airplane because they don't give a shit if you're good until the editing. Right. But in the yeah. moment, everything else is just as important as your performance, where in theater as an actor, if the audience is if I'm doing a play with you guys and I can tell that there's somebody sleeping in the third row, I can kind of cheat downstage a little bit and say my line a little louder and I can change that guy's evening. Right. I can't do that on television. Yeah. So the environment 
is dictated. It's a a different performance. Yeah. In in theater, you're kind of in charge. Like once the lights come on and the director's gone and the audience is there, showtime. Voiceover? There's never enough time. They always want you to just keep going. And you're like, wait, can we go back and try one more time? I think I got a better one in me, you know? Can, can we try it again? Well, why? Am I, eh, I kind of flubbed that. You didn't hear that? You know, I don't, that's just me. The preparation, does it feel harder, easier? Is it the same? Well, if you get the script ahead of time, it's, it's easier. But if you're reading copy and performing that moment, you're, you're trying to look at key words. You're trying to make sure you understand every word. You're trying to make sure that you can get your mouth around every word so that you have a natural flow, that your breath support is where it needs to be. It's, it's performative for sure. Yeah. Um, without trying to color with an intention, unless it's, unless that intention is there, you know, but you're still trying to find the honesty of what it is. You're still trying to find the truth. Like if I'm doing that, the, the, that show that I did for two years on Netflix, um, La Leyenda's Legend Quest, where I do two different voices, you know, a lot of that is, can you play me that again? Let me, let me try to make sure that the sound of that voice is consistent, you know? So, cause if it's an animated thing, like the consistency is there. Some, cause you know, I've done animation where the, the animation isn't done yet. I don't even know what the thing's going to look like. Do you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. So, the, the, it, the, the project that Danny did, you know, I just had them come in the studio and I directed the actual um, to voiceover as opposed to, you know, to the animation. So, yeah. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, so our last kicker, this was a. Uh, Definitely a journey <laughs> um, all around, <laughs> you know, all around the country. Um, but our last kicker, I'll let JL hit you with the first part, and I'll hit you with right. The so, part. so part one of this is this is your Back to the Future moment. So, if Paul of twenty twenty one can go back and speak to a very young Paul in Miami, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to your younger self? <sighs> Kind of trippy at first, but <laughs> uh, you mean professionally or personally? Both, either or. Oh, they're so or, or, or both together. Yeah, I think professionally it would be um, maybe take even more risks than you think you did, and also. Um, you know, maybe some advice would be to try to find a way to get along with people who don't see the same way that you do. You know, maybe fit in a little bit better. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I would say that. No, I think what I would just say is actually just do what you did and don't be afraid. But personally, personally, I'd say don't talk so much. And, and definitely don't feel that, don't feel that you need to chase, um, that brooding, beautiful creature in the corner. There's a reason why they're in the corner. (laughs) Wow. That's universal advice. That, that, that last part right there for sure. 
it's a great cautionary tale. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> if someone's being nice to you, take it. Don't distrust it. Take it at first. Where like maybe the old Paul would have been like, why are you being nice to me? You know, like, I yeah. didn't trust it as much. You know what I mean? So the second part of that, and that this one is for not only aspiring creatives, but also, you know, people that are well within the industry. Uh, what advice would you give? Um, I would say that always show up early. I think um, early is on time. On time is late and late you're fired. And I would always say, say yes until you can afford to say no. That's a big one. That's a huge one. Yeah. I, I always tell my students and any young artist growing up, like, hey, man, if somebody calls you up and they're like, hey, we're doing a screen reading, you say yes. You say, hey, will you do a part in my yes? You say yes to everything. And then if there's a conflict, you deal with it. Because what's going to happen is you're going to say yes to a lot of projects. Some of them are going to fall through. Some of them are going to get pushed back. You say no to all that stuff. They're not going to call you again. So now you may say yes and show up and it's a terrible experience. Well, now you know. Now you can afford to say no because you learned what you don't want to do. So you just keep saying yes to things and trying things. And then eventually you'll say, ah, I've done enough free play readings. I don't need to do another one. You know? Yeah. That's, that's great advice. And, Absolutely. You know, as a producer, writer, director, someone who, who runs a production company, there are people that, you know, came and did things as favors for me. And then I've turned around and used them for paid gigs. Sure. You know, and a lot of them. So I, I don't yeah. think like if, if I, if, if, so, if I like somebody and they say, I want you to be a part of my project and I say to them, what's your budget? And they tell me, well, I don't really have one, but I'm, I won't take a lot of your time. And this, that, of course, if you thought of me for your project, I'm honored. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I'll learn what I learned from that moment and move on, you know, because even when you're creating, like, you know, as a director, if I'm working with an actor and I say to them, will you try this? And they say, no, I don't ever want to work with that actor again. Yeah. I'm not, in I'm not interested in the word no, when it comes to art. Yeah. You know what I mean? Unless, unless, unless I'm an idiot with money, which I'm not, you know what I mean? <laughs> like I don't go over budget. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's the money we have. That's the money we have. But if it's about a choice, it's same thing with a writer. Like, you know, the only good playwright is a dead playwright, right? Because they don't argue with you. Most playwrights think that the play is about them and it's not, it's about the experience. And if your play is not helping the actors, not helping the audience, then the problem is your play. So li listen to people all the time. You know what I mean? Like you're not always yeah. right. Same thing with me as a director. I'm not right all the time. I'm just making suggestions. I'm hoping that the suggestions that I give you open doors in that designer, in that actor, in that writer to say, I hadn't seen that before. But writers that walk in with like, I'm not changing anything, that you're not here to create. You're here to dictate. And we don't need that. Like the classic medium. rule of, uh, the, the, what was the classic rule of improv? It's never no, it's always yes and. 
Yes, and I <laughs> agree. I say that all the time, man. It's the best. Yes, <laughs> yes, and that's a great way to end uh, an amazing interview. So I have this a lot of fun. I have to take my hat off to you, Mr. Tay. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is really our, our first interview, although we have an episode before you of uh, 2021. We took a little bit. Longer break, a little bit longer vacation, but yeah. you know, we're, we're hitting the road running. So this was a great, great way for us to, to blaze ahead into nice. 2021. Thank you, sir. Thank yeah, you. Awesome. Thank you guys. Yes, yes, yes. We are back. That was awesome. What a cool Mr. Guy. Tay. <laughs> Interesting dude. That was, that was fun. That yeah. was really fun to kind of sit down and, and talk about his journey through the industry and obviously being a Miami product uh, and then making sort of all his, you know, career pivots throughout his, his journey has been, it was just really fun. Yeah. And I talked about a, a mutual friend of ours, Danny Wilson, who Danny Wilson voices a character for one of my projects. Um, and I talked a little bit about that in, in the interview. One of my favorite episodes with Paul Tay actually is with Danny Wilson on Burn Notice. It's just, uh, it's an amazing uh, episode. So I used that episode with some of my students. I didn't even know that Paul was in that episode, but I knew that Danny was in uh, Burn Notice. And so I had Danny come in and give a masterclass for some of my students. And lo and behold, when I pulled up that episode on Burn Notice, I was like, wait a minute, that's Paul Tay. So I was like, we have to get him for Screen Heat Miami. And I wrote his name on the list that I have of, of people that I want to interview. And so, you know, when we're coming back off of our little hiatus, mm-hmm. I looked through the people that I had on the list for, of, for interviews. And I was like, hey, Paul Tay, let's go ahead and connect with him now. And so for me, that's the bigger way. But you see how these how these things work, how connected they are, how all these dots are connected. So, oh, absolutely. Yes. And, and, and that you're right. It's all about connecting the dots and speaking of trying to make a connection, the Oscars, the beloved Academy Awards, right? The kudo of kudos for, for Hollywood uh, is planning to have a live event, uh, which is, has already been delayed by a couple months. Usually, you know, right now when it's February, we should be talking about the Oscars this month, yeah. but it will be a couple months delayed. However, they are adamant about having a live portion of the event. However, this year, something totally different. They're planning on broadcasting it not only from the Dolby, but from different venues outside yeah. of the well simultaneously so that's it's going to be interesting to see how that unfolds i joked the other day that it's it's kind of like the world's most glamorous zoom meeting is what it's going to be (laughs) well we've seen a lot of successful and actually i think some of these award shows have had some of their best award shows with the morphing of these online uh portions so Mm -hmm. i'm really really interested in seeing how they evolve and and morph i'm sure that it's going to give them a little bit more hold on the timing because you know the oscars sometimes they run a little bit over but um you know this is going to be interesting to see we talked about evolution a lot in uh, the interview with paul tay and and that's what this industry is all about you know what they say adapt or die so yes absolutely and i guess it helps for some of these more long-winded speeches when you can just hit that mute button right (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you could have could have always done that, but <laughs> I guess yes. Could, just, but this it, time they could say, "Oh, te- technical difficulties." Yes, yeah, so sorry, we're the losing feed. the feed. <laughs> we'll come back to you later. <laughs> yeah, it'll be in the bonus footage. Yeah, right. Yeah, but it always comes back. These things come back to haunt you. Right. Dave Chappelle. Oh yes, his show came back. It came back yes. and it stopped. And then it came back again after Dave Chappelle got paid. <laughs> oh, yeah. To quote, to quote the show, I'm rich, bitch. Again. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So, exciting news. Yeah, Dave Chappelle's um, marquee show, The Chappelle Show, his namesake, is once again going to be back on Netflix, this time with Dave Chappelle's blessing because, as we mentioned, He's getting paid. He's getting what he felt he deserved as the creator and star of that show. Yeah, I, I always feel it's it's a it's a tough thing, and it's the chicken and the egg. And this is not just the film and TV industry; it's the music industry. It's any industry where you have an artist, a performer that's trying to get a foothold in, and you know the industry is like a machine. There, the industry is going to grind, especially in that beginning part of a performers or entertainers uh the beginning part of their career uh you know the way to make the most profit and so they are going to put a contract in front of someone that's super hungry Mm. and they'll they just want to get their way in or you know move on move up to the next level to put a contract that on the surface seems like you know it's going to work out for the performer now, the flip side of it is you don't know at that phase what's going to take off and what what's not going to take off. And so in this case, Dave Chappelle signed a contract that and we don't know what the contract um, what the contract says. But Dave Chappelle, as vocal as he is, um, has stated that his contract was really, really a bad contract. Going into the third season, he was going to get 50 million for that third season. But the the, the Chappelle show was so popular. One of, if not, you know, one of the best comedy shows in history. In history. And his fans, you know, they're loyal, loyal fans. And so, you know, he didn't sign a contract where he was going to get you know that he was going to get paid when the con- right. w- when the show moved on to other places that's a big part of what the the writers were um that's what they were debating about you know how right. Right. getting paid as things matriculate as they move down the pipeline and right. so he wasn't going to get paid a dime from right. that deal with comedy central and and comedy central is owned by viacom so right. you know viacom and and um and netflix and Dave Chappelle just put it out there. He's not going to hold back. Told his fans, don't watch the show. And guess what? They yeah. didn't watch the show. And he asked well, Netflix yeah. not, not to show it. Yeah, no, he, he did. And, and again, because he has such a lucrative deal now with Netflix and Netflix realizing the value of his brand and his talent uh, was willing to comply and literally take his show off the platform, even though contractually they had every right to stream it. Uh, they felt that the relationship with the artist, with the talent was much more important than streaming another show. And so it was a very smart move by Netflix. And then it kind of pushed 
the hand of uh, essentially a Viacom, like you said, in Comedy Central to rework their deal with Dave so that he did get what he needed to get in terms of a, a back end residual in order to have the show now streaming on other networks. And so it's, it's going to be very interesting to see where all this goes. And does this open the door potentially in the future for a new Chappelle show to come back in some way, shape or form? Yeah, that, now that would be something, you know, just like uh, Cobra Kai. You know, right. Cobra Kai was on YouTube Red, that the now defunct YouTube Red, and it was their biggest show. And now look at this. Yeah, absolutely. Cobra Kai, oh. number one streamer in the world. Yes. I mean, it's been a back and forth battle. It feels like one of these karate championships, right? You know, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Cobra Kai came in and totally just no mercy, kicked the competition on Netflix. And then it seemed like right after that, just as they were like burning through uh, the binges, you had the Queen's Gambit. She came in and she made her chess moves. She was number one. And it was like, oh, it's all Queen's back. And then Bridgerton was like, nah, ow, we're number one. And then Cobra Kai. Lupin, Lupin was, you Lupin. know, for a minute. Lupin for yeah. a minute, you know, kind of made and, its way in there. And you wonder, though, it, 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 the strength of the shows is obviously obvious. They're, they're fantastic. They're all binge-worthy. They're all high-quality, great stories, great characters, indelible moments. But I wonder if it's just the whole machination of Netflix in terms of how they suck you in. And once you're in, and uh, they're always recommending the next thing and the next thing yeah. and the next thing. So if the success of one show kind of boosts the popularity of the one coming right after, it's almost like a relay race. Yeah, but they've been in it, you know, they were essentially the first streamer. So they created the archetype, but right. a lot of people don't realize Netflix, their success is not just the quality of the show. Well, now, you know, the, the quality of the shows are better than they've ever been. But originally they were the company that, you know, you would get your DVDs, you send it back, you get another one. And they gathered all of that data on people over time. And that's one of their most valuable commodities is the data that they have on people's right. tastes, who they are, the demographics. Absolutely. And so yeah. they know how to tailor within what you're watching specifically suggesting things with a 98% efficacy, I might have you understand this because I look on mine. It doesn't always work for me because I'm like 98% for this show. You know, that this is 98% that I should watch this show, but for the most part, you know, recommending things that you want to watch. Yeah. And so yeah. It, it is a, you know, it's a kinetic thing. It goes back and forth. You see, you know, what's the most popular show. Let me watch that. And then it gets on your, particular um, algorithm and it goes back and right. forth. So they've been super successful with that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and ultimately, look, a great story is a great story, like I was saying. And, and I think regardless of the platforms or the streaming wars, you know, the, the cream always rises to the top. Right. So I think the best shows naturally or also organically rise because they are good stories. They're they're these sort of virtual water cooler moments that take place now not on an actual water cooler but on twitter and facebook and instagram of sharing you know what is the next thing to watch so you're seeing that from your friends on facebook you're also seeing it you know from tweets and hashtags and now that's what's also driving these audiences constantly to new shows yeah and, it, and you know what it is something how fast the streamers have taken over i mean yeah. that it, that has been i think the story over the past, the bigger story over the past, I would I want to say two, three years. It hasn't been that long. 
really. No, no, it's maybe not even three years. Yes, not not even. And I remember when everyone was fighting because nobody wanted to separate the streaming from the mail order DVDs of Netflix. Remember when they tried to create two companies and everyone was that was three years ago. Yeah, they're DVDs, and now it's like, (laughs) who rents DVDs? Yeah, (laughs) like so, like you know, it feels like it was decades ago, and like you said, it was just a couple years ago. Yeah. So that that's another big thing. Now we still have a couple of streamers coming out. I mean, probably more than a couple, you know, a couple that we know about. Well, we'll be getting much more in depth. We talked a lot about, you know, uh, Viacom, Paramount, uh, Comedy Central, part of the Viacom family. Their Paramount Plus is going to be launching in March, I believe. So we'll have a lot to talk about. Well, there's a lot of buzz behind that Paramount Plus. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Like I I said, you know, the, the big Viacom brands will all be there. So it'll be interesting to see how they roll that out. Yeah, I'm excited about the Paramount Plus. Yeah, I don't know my I don't know if my wallet is so excited, but uh, you know you got to have them all. So yeah, I think so. I'm I'm definitely looking forward to Ma- to Maverick the sequel to Top Gun. Uh, so I think if they make that part of the offering, I'm totally in. <laughs> I have the need, Kevin. <laughs> we have that need for speed. <laughs> definitely. Well, speaking of speed, I think we've. We've consumed all we can in this screen heat, so um, it's been it's been quite the ride thus far, and, and I can't wait for the next one. Yep. So we're going to sign off on this one. Uh, we will hear you on the next one. Thanks for sticking in with us. I'm Kevin Sharpley. I'm Jalen Martinez, and we will hear you next episode. Yeah.